what's up, people? Welcome back to the Over and Minutes podcast. This week, I'm joined by a proper, proper gentleman, a true hero, and a guy that I've really enjoyed getting to know over the past couple of weeks. This is the 2021 NLR Super Twins winner and champion. Welcome, Roddy Taylor, onto the podcast. Roddy, how are you, sir? Good evening, Sam. I'm very well. Um, loving life down here in sunny Hampshire. Uh, you'll be pleased to know it's 29 degrees down here. So a bit, bit balmy this evening, but uh, no, no. All, all good in my world. Thank you very much, Sam. Good. I'm glad to hear. 29 degrees. That's folklore where, where you're from originally, is it not? It, it is. I think um, I've been up and down in Scotland a few times recently, and yeah, every time I'm putting on another jumper. So between <laughs> here and Edinburgh, it's always another jumper colder. And uh, my parents, well, my mum was originally from Castletown between Thursday and Wick, and that's right. another jumper colder again. So as I said, it's just another world. Exactly. Two different, same island, two very different worlds. Very, so, very, very, very much so. Exactly. Roddy, what's new? How's life getting on? What's new? Um, nothing's new. I'm still running around in circles on motorbikes with a lot of like-minded idiots. Um, <laughs> I did it many, many years ago. Um, took it quite seriously a few years ago. Won a few championships here and there and competed against some of the best people in the world and yeah, pleased to say I beat a lot of them. Um, <laughs> life took over. Uh, all sorts of things happened in life. And um, I decided that I had a, a gap of 28 years with not racing. Um, life, you never know what it throws at you. Um, found out I had throat cancer. Um, went in for a bit of surgery, a bit of radiotherapy. Uh, lost a couple of stone. Um just to lose a couple of stone yeah get back down to racing way it's a bit extreme yeah, I, I could recommend other and easier ways was, of doing it for sure <laughs> uh, but now I decided just to go back and have, a, have another crack at racing about five years ago so I've um, been loving it ever since but as I said we'll, we'll, we'll touch on some of that later on Sam no, exactly, correct. And I want to get back into the very, very start. But before that, we're going to go through to the usual quick fires, the fans' favourite. They all enjoy it. And right, Roddy, they're just easy. Just first thing that comes into your head. They're all this or that, so pretty much. It's, it's not easy, Sam. I've listened to some of your other podcasts, and I wish life was so black and white as just answering a yes or no, or it's this or it's that. But come on, then throw them at me. Throw them at you. Right, easy one to start. Tea or coffee? Tea. Quite right. That's that's the Hampshire runner. The Hampshire but, runner. But, but it depends on what time of day it is. Because if it's later in the afternoon, or I've got to sit down and talk to somebody for an hour or so and just make stuff up, and I'm needing a bit of a hit, yeah, for sure I'd be going for a very very strong coffee. <laughs> but I, I don't have any coffee at hand, but I do have some of the original Iron Brew that's still got lots and lots of sugar in it. So uh, I'll top up my fluid levels on that for the moment. Thank you. The original nectar. We'll have you singing by the end of the podcast. That's oh, no, you don't good. want to do that. There's, there's, there's many <laughs> things that I can do, but singing and dancing is definitely not one that's in my repertoire, I can assure you. Uh, from everybody I know that sings and dances, they don't seem to have it either, so don't let that stop you. <laughs> <laughs> right, second one. And just talking of which, night out or a night in? Um, night in at the moment. Mm -hmm. Nice and casual. I quite like that. Right, if you had to get rid of one tomorrow, would you rather get rid of motorbike racing or dogs? Oh, now I need to check to see if whether my wife's within earshot. We both like a dog, 
We've both um, always had dogs in the past, but currently with where we're living, what I'm doing, um, oh, it's, again, it's not black and white. So I would never ever get rid of motorbike racing. So at the moment, I'm afraid the dogs would have to go. Well, that's that's very fair if you've not got them in the house beside you. Right. Oh, what's next? There we go. Movies or TV series? Um, I like both, but at the moment I do like a good TV series because with lockdown and various other things where all of a sudden they've cancelled some bike racing and I'm looking for something to go and do. Yeah, a, a good um, Ben's watch of a good TV series is always great. Exactly, a TV series. Just It's nice having that next episode and you don't have to think about what to watch next. It is, yes, yeah. No, it's great. And, and I can fast forward the adverts and all that type of stuff in it. So, <laughs> no, it, it's good. Exactly. Right, a torrential rain, a torrential rainy track or a sunny day at the track? Oh, now, again, um, at the moment this year, torrential rain. I seem to have managed to pull off some better results in the rain. Uh, one of my competitors said to me quite recently, oh, Roddy, this is, uh, you're a bit of a wet weather expert. And I turned around to my sister, I said, Jesus Christ, I said, have you not seen the weather that we've had this year? I said, do you not think I've had a choice? So, <laughs> That's just you just say it's where you grew up from. It is, it is absolutely Run, running around the roads in the middle of the Scottish borders, as my granddad would say, he says, Now son, if you didn't like the weather, wait ten minutes. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. Right. Oh, are you in the car when you're on the way to the meet? So you're a radio or a playlist man? Playlist. Strong, strong. Playlist. Bath or a shower if you're looking to relax and unwind after a busy day at the track. Oh, bath, without a doubt. Are we talking bath bombs and all the suds, or are we just talking good, good old-fashioned um, boiling, um, boiling um, tub of water? Talking just a lot of very hot water and a nice cold beer. <laughs> Don't you? You've convinced me. I might have to go for one after this if you keep talking <laughs> like that. If you're trying to get something organised, you're more likely to FaceTime somebody or call them or give them a text. Um, I would call them. Can't be a good conversation. And <clears throat> text has no tone. Mm, and text. Yeah, and, and I hate it if my sarcasm's wasted. So <laughs> I suffer the exact same problem. I send the text, I read it back, and I go, I sound like an arsehole. I send them a text apologising for my text. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I like to know that if they think that I'm telling them they're an arsehole, they know that for sure. So. <laughs> Right, a bourbon or a custard cream to go with your cup of tea slash coffee? Custard cream, without oh. a doubt. Right, socks and sliders, yes or no? Socks and not not flip-flops, but sandals? It's wrong, no. <laughs> just, just just no socks. Nobody nobody turning up to the, the pit lane wearing that, no? No, 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 no. I've seen some pictures of... Uh, Lewis Hamilton and various other people recently who are <clears throat> apparently um, setting a fashion trend. So, so, so that's what it says anyway on Twitter and the likes. But I just look at it and I go, dear God! There was a picture of James Hunt and Barry Sheen and people like that, and then some of the today's um, up-and-coming stars and established people. And I think, oh no, no. So definitely no white <laughs> socks and sliders. That's a no. I'll see you in the Louis Vuitton or the Gucci headbands anytime soon. No. No, you won't be. No, no. I won't, I, yeah, I won't be wearing my wraparound sunglasses and uh, my, my, my designer Red Bull cap and wearing it backwards <laughs> or whatever. No, that's not me. Not you. 
Not yet, not until, not until they give you the money and tell you to wear it like that, and then you'll do well, it. Well, that's right, as he said. I'm still waiting on the MotoGP deal to, to turn up, but at um, age 58 and a bit now, I think it's a wee bit unlikely, but um, we, can, we can all dream. It's good to dream. 58 and a bit. Hey, you've, you're sat there, one of the most recent champions in the world of motor, motorbike racing, so... Well, Valentino Rossi and I are both eligible for the Thunder Sport um, Senior 500 series now so um yeah you never know as i said rossi's just retiring from it so maybe he might pop up in the cb 500 class one day as a senior exactly i was about to say the same thing you never know might end up in a team in an endurance race or something like that that would be good yeah yeah now without a doubt i i have to i have to work hard on the fitness as i said at my <laughs> age i'm i'm competing against young kids and it's not um a, a series that's designed for um elderly classic gentlemen riding classic bikes it's modern it's current and i'm racing up against young kids so uh yeah no the fitness i've got to work hard on well you're doing all right and with that iron brew you'll be fine so yes that's right yeah yeah iron brew and tonics tea cakes you'll be there for oh <laughs> yeah de definitely definitely right a second to last one what's your go-to musical um musical Oh, good question. I can't answer that one because it just depends on the mood, where I am, what I'm doing, all manner of things. As I said, it's just, now, music's too difficult. I think I, I, when I was talking to you the other day, we were on about it and saying, many moons ago, I did a thing on Radio Borders for like Desert Island Discs and um, had to choose some songs that I would take with me. And honestly, that is so difficult. I think on my playlist, on my um, I, I bought a phone now is I, I think I've probably got over 2,000 songs on it and it's, it's, it, it ranges from ACDC to Glenn Campbell to as he said Genesis to Pink Floyd to Springsteen to uh, Pavarotti to you name it it's in there it's very wide very varied if I've got the headphones on and I'm trying to psych myself up before I race a little bit as he said get a bit of ACDC or Iron Maiden or something like that on there and get a bit pumped and other times they said on a long drive home yeah you just want something a bit more chilled so uh, I have no go-to default think ah I'm going to go and listen to this or I want to watch whatever uh, no no, no so it's too varied well the playlist just from the names you mentioned I think you'll be doing fine anyway so you don't really have to pick a specific favorite there no, um, no, no. Exactly. And last and last one, the old the age old question, sweet or salted popcorn at the movies? Salted. Oh, you're a you're a braver man than me. Right? Were you were you brought up on the salt on the porridge as well in the morning? Um, absolutely. Again, one of um grandfather Sutherland's favourites was the salt on the porridge in the morning. And my, my brother and I used to call it the grey death because it was <laughs> sitting there on the Rayburn that we had in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And um, it would be bubbling away and bubbling and spitting and doing whatever. <clears throat> and we just used to look at it and just pull faces. But he would be there shoveling it in first thing in the morning. But as I said, he lived well until he, his 90s and was out and always doing something, never never sat still. So um, as I said, Grandad Sutherland was originally from Castletown up there in the very north of Scotland. So made it made a hardy stuff. I was just about to say the exact same words, made the hardest stuff. There must be something to it. My, my granddad was a salt on the porridge man and he was in the garden, he had this massive garden and he was out there cutting back the hedges every single day. So yeah, must be some truth to it. 
there, there's a lot to be said for porridge, though. I mean, some sometimes I will still do that, as I said, but uh, I've, I've gone soft. I will confess publicly to this, as I said, there's nothing better than like a big spoon of jam or something in the middle of it. Sugar, drown it in sugar. Yeah, yeah, no, def- definitely better. It's like um, it's like toast. Porridge is just a vessel for sugar, and toast is just a vessel for butter. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, with butter with um, lots of marmalade on it, and exactly. Uh, see, I'm, 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 I'm very much a traditionalist and all of that kind of stuff. As I said, <laughs> I'm, I'm not fussy about what I eat. Um, I think on about food, health, fitness. Um, I wouldn't say I'm a vegetarian. I'll eat as much vegan stuff as I can. Um, if I turn up at somebody's house and they've made me stew and dumplings, I will, I will eat it. But if I can avoid it, I will avoid it. And I would say from a sports nutritional point of view, last than the, the events that I've been racing in, they're endurance events. You, you've got to turn up there on a Thursday night, do practice on Friday, uh, time qualifying, races heats on a Saturday and then you've got to peak at three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. So you've got to mind what you're eating. You've got to make sure that you you keep a constant supply of energy on fuel going in and and keep the levels constant. So yeah, avoid the the sugary drinks and all of that type of stuff. Um, And as I said, food like porridge and lots of veggie stuff and things I've seen been much better on. I think exactly. going back to when I, I raced in the 80s and I was competing at a much higher level, as I said, we're world class people. But my, my fitness, my nutrition and everything was shocking. Classic case of um, I wish I knew then what I know now mm-hmm. and, and listening to some some people. And what I've learned with dealing with young kids coming through go-karts, moving into slicks and wings cars. Uh, Their parents have had um, unbelievable disposable incomes available to um, look after little Johnny making the transition, as he said, from go-karts into cars. And they've had sports psychologists. They've had, as I said, their own chefs turning up. They've had all sorts of things. And, And I've watched with interest as to how... What is now Formula One, Formula Two, or Formula Three? How the people in those paddocks now turn up prepared to race? And I think the bike world is still 10 to 15 years behind that. Mm-hmm. I think the bike, even the guys in the Grand Prix and the British Superbike teams, they're getting there with it, but they're not at the level that some of the Formula Car guys are. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think there's. It's almost form. I think the formula, like you say, one, two, and three, they're almost a completely different sport on their own now. Like there's such a such a difference between everything. I think the amount of money that's involved, um, and I did, just to put some figures to it, so the the listeners get a feel for the amount of money that these people are throwing at things. People now coming out of the go kart world, so you're 14, 15 year old kids moving into Formula Four. For one day's testing at Donington or Silverson or wherever it is the team decides to go, they're probably spending approximately £5,000 a day just to run round about and do a day's testing in a car. And that's before they pay their um, sports psychologist to go with them and various other things that they've done. They'll have had a couple of days on a sim somewhere, uh, iZone, places like that, in preparation for the test. And 
these kids they've got to turn up put their backside in the seat of a car and they've got to perform from lap one and you'll there understand you this from the, 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 the sports psychology side of it and sounds a bit pervy but <clears throat> every single time they go out in the car they've got to be at the same state of arousal so it doesn't matter whether they're, they're, they're doing a test whether it's qualifying whether it's the first lap of the race or just a lap on a wednesday afternoon to test the car unless they're all at a constant level you're either pushing too hard you're not pushing hard enough so the cars the margins within it is so small so the driver has got to make sure that he is very very consistent and and the good ones turn up get in a car and can knock lap after lap after lap out without even thinking about it so they'll have sat there in the chair they'll have been doing visualization they'll have been doing all sorts of things to make sure that they're properly prepared for it and that's the level that these guys are at all right you so you mean they just have to get in the car and be at that 99 percentile and just go yes yeah absolutely the the cliche of flicking the switch they just have to be at that from it is because there's no point in testing and running around unless you're pushing as hard as you're going in qualifying all that you're doing is is just reinforcing bad habits and the car's not reacting or the bike isn't reacting as well as it's going to do when it's under real race conditions so you're fooling yourself and you're just reinforcing bad habits and it's not the ones that's going to make you go quick so they say about you've got to be in the zone and all Mm -hmm. the things that you do in your practice you've just got to practice to be in the zone and when you're in the zone it all starts to happen just a second nature and it's instinctive you don't have to think about it because you've already rehearsed it in your mind two or three dozen times the visualizations tricked you into thinking that mm-hmm. and i'm sure you've driven down the motorway somewhere and you've kind of come come to your senses and gone oh where am i and you've forgotten the last uh, 30 or 40 miles but you've never had an accident you've never had a near miss and you've never had a problem because unwittingly you've been driving in the zone and you've been doing it at a subconscious level and you're probably actually doing it a lot better than you would do when you're really thinking about it so that's your it doesn't matter what type of sport it is that's the level that you're pushing to so you're doing it instinctively and you've not even got to think about it then you can then you can afford to listen to the guy that's trying to talk to you while you're doing 200 miles per hour around the corner as well I am so glad. My wife's often said that to me. She says, oh, I need to get you an intercom. And I've just pulled the face and gone, ah, really? I think, how on earth some of the car guys, and I've done it. I've, I've worked there as an engineer for some of the Formula car teams. And this happened with a, a very, very well-known driver who's at the front end of Formula E now. But engineer comes on, on the radio to him. He says, you can break a little harder or a bit later into turn one. Mm-hmm. So the next lap round, the driver comes round and he actually misses the corner completely because the engineers told him that he can break later in there. But he can't because of all the other things that the engineer doesn't know about. Yeah. And then it snowballs and then he has to push harder at the next corner to try and make up the time. And by this time he's run wide and he's got his tyres dirty. And then he starts to get frustrated because he's thinking, oh, my God, the whole team thinks I'm just not trying hard enough. And it just snowballs. And it all came from that one comment of a misinformed engineer that says, oh, you can break a bit harder into turn one. 
So it's a team effort, all of the stuff in, in the cars, massive, massive team effort where once the riders are out on the bike, <clears throat> although there's a massive team effort to get you there, it's up to you once you're on it. You are away. Amazing. I'm gonna, I wasn't planning to talk about that first, but you've, you've piqued my interest. So do you like that aspect of the individual? Do you like it going... Because the way I sort of envision it for you is it must be going, all these people, like you say, quite rightly, have worked their arse off to get the bike ready for this. And now it's you to go off and almost show their work, like to show the credibility of their work and go, I'm here to prove that I'm the best driver with the best bike. Now. It best is. If, 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 if you listen to your... John McGuinnesses, Guy Martin, Michael Dunlops, and all those top-end road racers, and so many of the Grand Prix guys. And they all will say something similar. There is nothing better than putting your helmet on, the smell of the helmet, and when the visor clicks shut, you are in your own world. And it is up to you to make things happen. And it, it's you're shutting yourself off completely from the outside world. So whether it, they're sitting at the top of um, Bray Hill or whether they're sitting on the grid at Silverstone ready for the, the British Grand Prix or whatever, that 30 seconds, that minute of where it's all calm and whatever, you can't replace that anywhere. Pe people often ask me about, say, what, what, what did you do when you weren't racing? Mm. Um, often look for things to try and replace the buzz that lots of the, the adrenaline rush but it was lots of little things like that where you were in charge of your own destiny you're sitting there and you get that 30 seconds that minute or just complete switch off from the outside world and you've just got to sit there and focus on what it is you've got to do and you've got to do it better than the rest of them i know and it's wow i can't even comprehend that aspect of the the minute of just going I'm in absolute control of everything for the next however long the race is, like you say, whether you're doing an endurance race or the, the third. Obviously, you have the combat of the opposition and the, the other riders, but it is all a one-man band. Obviously, I come from a rugby team where there's 14 other guys, but you are there by yourself, and then obviously pit, pit crews and things come into it. But that whole... I think um, if, if you're a rugby background, uh, Bath rugby team used Don McPherson as their um, sports psychologist behind the scenes. Don McPherson <clears throat> also did some stuff with Andy Murray, also did some stuff with some very world-class motorcycle and motor car racers. And um, he's a great believer in um, Philip. Steve Peters wrote a book, The Chimp Paradox, about the, the, the chimp and loosen your head and don't let it take control. Because once it takes control, you can't shut it up. And, and it's ruling what you're doing rather than you operating at a subconscious level where it, it's all of your natural things that's making things work and not the fear side of it. So as I said, fear's good. You can use it, gets the adrenaline going, but it, it can also sabotage you very quickly. And, and it doesn't matter whether you're on a bike or a rugby field and you've got to hunker down in the scrum and you've got some 22 stone guy about to land on top of you. Uh, that, that definitely focuses the attention. Coming from the middle of the Scottish borders, went to Gallashiels Academy and got roped into a bit of rugby. Um, I could run. Now, I could run fast, usually for all of the wrong reasons. But, um, 
I, I, I won't him. ask you about those with the camera. No, 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 yeah. But I played flanker for a little while, and as he said, grab the ball and I could go. But even at a 14, 15 year old, some of these kids looked like they were all born when they were 21 with a beard, and they were all wearing the 18 stone. And when they hit you, dear God, it hurt. I said, mm-hmm. I've fallen off bikes well over 100 mile an hour before, and just picked myself up, dusted myself down. I done a bit of a gravel rash. It's kind of not been that bad. But when some of these guys hit you, honestly, talk about knock the wind out of you. And I had thought, um, I suppose, as I said, being from the middle of the Scottish borders, I had a choice. As I said, do I play rugby or go take the motorsport route? So I took the took the motorsport route instead. <laughs> Wanted to stand out of it because every man and his dog plays rugby over here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think with, with, with um, the, rug, the rugby teams, though, again, it must have been, I think, 1983 or 84. You might, you might be able to... Um, throw some light on this it was the year scotland won the grand slam oh that would be the last one of the five nations when was that it was so it was about 83 or 84 and it's, it's definitely one of those two or 85 it might have been 85 it, it could have been but that year i won the scottish um 350 motorcycle racing championship so what is now the, the junior class right and junior super stock or whatever it is and um the presentation for it was in, um, oh, I've forgotten the name of the hotel in Edinburgh, but anyway, Scottish rugby team, the night that they won the, the Five Nations and won the Grand Slam, we were all in the hotel on the same night. <laughs> so talk about a messy night. And I knew quite a lot of the guys from Gala Shields, Melrose, Hoyk and whatever, that was all in the team. So we had all just kind of bundled into the bar and I don't even know what time we got out of there, to be honest. As I said, they they were plying me with drink, and oh. um, all of these boys, they 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 they're professional drinkers. So I think that they were um, professional drinkers that that played a little bit of rugby on the side, where I was a motorbike racer that did a little bit of drinking on the side, and yeah, I just wasn't in that league at all. So <clears throat> yeah, probably the less said about what happened at the end of that night, the better. See, that's the kind. I think that'd be two good crowds to mix together: the motor racing crowd and the the rugby crowd for drinkers. But I don't I think, know whether that's just my experiences that I got shown at Le Mans throughout my young years of, uh, what was it, stubby, stubby pyramids with the beer that's bottles. Right. Yeah, 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 no, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've seen a few, um, about 18 or 19 high, I think was about yes. the record that I've seen them. And thought, yeah, that was fair play to these guys. I can't do that now, whether it's an age thing or not. I'll have a drink, um, nothing to excess. Uh, never, ever get drunk and fall over. Well, I haven't for a while anyway. And, um, I was going to say, I'm saying nothing about my situation. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, but I think year, years ago, I think, yeah, you would go out and have a, a couple of beers a night before a race and things. And as I said, it was all very sociable. Mm-hmm. And it's changed quite a lot now where people are a lot more professional. As I said, the younger kids and things now coming through. There's still, still quite a bit of um, social side of it. A bit of witty banter and things goes, goes on in the clubhouses at the circuits. But... It's not, yeah, it, it should be, as he said. I do it for fun, as I said, and, and I think some some of the kids are, are, are trying to get a career through it. Um, some of them take themselves far too seriously. Um, there's there's a current craze at the moment that lots of them sur- are surrounding themselves with mentors, and it seems to be the the done thing that you've got to have Which a mentor. Former, former pros or just yeah, more yeah. drivers. Um, 
some of them are current. Some of them are current pros that will go to the club meetings. Some of them are former pros that, that never really quite achieved. But sometimes like teachers, sometimes the best teachers didn't actually do it themselves, but they are very, very good teachers because they know all the things that went wrong. Mm -hmm. But um, it's getting a bit controversial now, but there is some people out there taking money under false pretenses. When you listen to what some of these kids are, are, are told and you just want to go, no. Just, just stop. Yeah, just As I said, they, they think that they're going to make it in, in, in the GP paddock because this guy's telling them to break 50 yards later and do the, oh, yeah, you've got to push harder and do this and do that. And it, it changes corner by corner, lap by lap. And uh, what do they say? The seat of the pants feel. Just what it feels like. Seat of the pants, what the bike's actually telling you. And as I said, you're, the, the physical side of it, it Unless you are really on it, you can't push. Nothing yeah. feels right. The monkey's monkey's loose in your head, and it, it's screaming, stop, you're going to die. Slow down, shut the throttle. And everybody else is telling you to speed up and go. And, and they usually crash and just, just end up riding bikes off. So I think um, just, no pun intended on it, but slowly, slowly catch a monkey. It's just, <laughs> just, just le learn your trade. Surround yourself with good people that will give you good advice, um, and you don't always have to pay a fortune for it. But, exactly. but it's, it's just listen to the right people. Well, the thing I was always taught as well was like, if you're good enough, they'll come find you anyway. So very much so, yes, without a doubt. Some everybody's different, and some people need a little bit of direction. They're good at what they're doing. And that they will run around about and they will practice more than anybody else. And as long as they correct the errors, that's fine. But mm -hmm. it's a bit like what I said earlier, that, that they'll run around about in circles only practicing bad habits and reinforcing bad habits. So you need to work out what's right and what's wrong, which all of the data that is available now and again, I've done lots of stuff with this with the young kids in cars where you can watch them on a camera, watch what their hands do on the steering wheel, watch how they're riding the bike, what their feet are doing in the footrests. And I'm sure you've some, seen some YouTube clips and clips that they use from the BSB footage and things. And you think they've got some very strange camera angles and you watch what the guys are doing with their feet. Mm -hmm. But as well as doing the Rossi dangle with this sticking the leg out the side and sort of leg out going into the corners. But if you look at the soles of their boots and the middle of the ball of their, their foot, the footrest has almost worn a hole in the, in the sole of their, their, their boots. And that's just because of the sheer physical pressure and effort that goes through the sole of their boots onto the footrests. And they're actually using their hands and arms a lot less on the bike to steer the bike than what you think. It's almost like, almost like riding the horse then, they're sort of using the hips to sort of... It is, it is, yeah. yes, yeah. Sorry, so I, I had Ryan Mania on last week, so I'm still very much got the horse racing getting it through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah he, he literally lived in the next house to, um, to my sister in Selkirk for a long time. They, right. they were neighbours, so my sister still got a lot of horses. Uh, she taught me to ride. Well, and I, I, owe, I, owe, I owe him a pint, so next time you're up, I'll, we'll get you in the pub as well and we'll go for yes. a pint, the three of us. Yeah, yeah. And uh, where somebody had asked me, so can you ride a horse? I said, no, but I can stay on one. <laughs> uh, well, two, two, two different things. 
Well, I knew, I knew they were out of my league when Grand National, when I went to me and he quoted Sherlock Holmes and he went, they're dangerous at either end and crafty in the middle. And I went, well, if you're thinking that, not a yes. hope in hell I'm getting on one of them. Yeah, technically my wife can ride a horse fine, but as I said, I, I can I can stay on one, I can sit on one, uh, yeah. but you're right. I, I always think the brakes are a bit intermittent and you're never quite sure with traction control or, or the anti-wheelie system. I, I, I can't work out, I can't find the switch. <laughs> I was going to say the difference between your mount and his is when you tell yours to stop with your two fingers on the brake, it normally does that. That's right, yes, yeah, de- def- definitely. <laughs> oh, well. Ryan, if you're listening, we have a we have a great amount of respect for what you managed to achieve. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and it's still freezing cold up in Selkirk, Ryan. It has not changed one little bit. I was up there last week, and it was about just over ten degrees. So that was another jumper colder. <laughs> ten degrees—that's warm in Selkirk. Everybody would have been in shorts around you, and you'd be in. A yeah, it would be. <laughs> right. Roddy, I want to get to the very, very start. So you get into bikes, like you said, you had you had the rugby that you were sort of dragged into as a virtue of being found in gala. And then, like you said, you sort of moved off to try the motorsport, right? So when was your first interaction with bikes? Was it a was it a step from watching cars and going around and going, you're telling me people do this on two wheels? Or was it, a, I saw somebody flying past the house on one of the borders roads and thought, that looks like that'd be fun. Um, no, I am a third generation tailor who is involved in racing. Um, my grandparents had the local grocer shop in Erlston. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was about eight or nine brothers and every single one of them had a motorbike. They used to do the grass tracks in Erlston, used to do the scrambles in Erlston. Um, then my father um, got involved in motorbikes um he started um building them for people to race uh, he, he partially blew himself up with a dismantling a grenade um and blew his left hand off and ended up partially sighted and eventually went blind but he um it's going to go off on a tangent now i can tell but he 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 managed to bring up three kids uh, never claimed disability and, and, and just, just got on with life. Mm-hmm. But getting on with life, because he had a massive interest in motorbikes and had been already building race bikes and doing stuff for people, him and the local blacksmith in the uh, village, um, John Brotherson, best of mates for all the years. And But anyway, my dad started building racing Nortons for people in the 50s and 60s. After he's lost a hand? Yes. Yeah, and still partially sighted. So determination and, um, yeah, what was it? Patience and perseverance, you could pee a hole in a stone. So (laughs) that was my dad. He would be rummaging through boxes, looking for spare parts, bits and pieces, doing things to put these bikes together. And uh, my brother and I would would, uh, get involved and have to help him with stuff and set the ignition timing and do the reading of valve degree plates and just how to set the engines up. But the basic mechanics of it, he, he could still build a bike and he would build a fast bike. So um, this is kind of going back to how did I get into it? Eventually, um, it, they, they started doing uh, vintage bike racing. So the bikes that he was building and racing in the 1950s and 60s were eligible for the vintage bike class. So 
probably mid-1970s, my dad had a couple of people that raced some of his old bikes in the vintage bike class and, and went out and won on them and did quite well. Um, I think, he, he, again, he, he was quite shrewd in what he did. Uh, Dick Irwin, who was multiple uh, Scottish champion at that time, my dad got him to ride one of the vintage bikes. And, and he went out and rode, rode, rode the bike, but uh, yeah, managed to win a, win a few races on it. And um, then well, it must have been quite an honour for your dad for someone like like him to come and accept. It was, yes, yeah, no, no, de- def- def- definitely. But but Dick had the experience. He, he was a canny bloke. He knew what he was doing, and um, he was all right. He was all right. I heard he was all right. <laughs> he was all right. Yeah, definitely all right. And and he rode bikes for Jim Darlin that had Darlin and Sweeney motorcycles in Berwick upon Tweed mm-hmm. and Scremerson or somewhere like that they were from. But anyway. But my dad was friends with Jim Darlin, and they had obviously been talking over a pint, or actually wouldn't be a glass of whiskey. It would be he was wasn't one for drinking pints unless it was one of his own homebrew. But yeah, my dad's homebrew is stuff a legend as well, which uh, again is a story in itself. I could actually do a whole night on things that my dad did. Yeah, I'll be I'll be more than happy to do a part two on I, the legend I, of the Taylor family. It, it is, yeah. But as I said, but anyway, cut a long story short, uh, my brother started racing bikes for him. Uh, he had a 500 Norton, um, and it took him about a year to sort of find his feet, get going. The following year, I think he won the Scottish Vintage Bike Championship. Um, the next year after that, which was the third year, I started racing. And again, t- took a few meetings, find my feet, get going. But then the following year, which I think must have been about 1980, something like that, 79 or 80, either my brother or I won every single race we entered or I took the class lap record in the vintage bike series, whatever it is we did, whatever circuit we were in. So either he got it or I got it. So there wasn't a lot of rivalry between us, but it was um, bloody hard racing. And and Douglas would not give you an inch. He really wouldn't. He he, he would run you wide and whatever it would take to to get the win. So... As I said, it was just, um, it was full on. And even to this day, some of the guys up there, when I sort of reappeared on the Scottish scene and went mm-hmm. there cutting the races, they were saying, now, son, oh, now, I remember you and your brother racing. And he says, I can remember watching the vintage bike race. And everybody used to come and watch it because he says it was the only one that where you would see two vintage bikes been sliding into the corner, been backed into a corner and then sliding round the corner and then getting power slid out the other side again. He says, in a way that a vintage bike should never have been ridden. And, um, the back yeah. wheel almost enters the corner before the front wheel. because It was, like it was, yeah. Looking the, like, um, what's it called? Motocross, you know the speedway where they, they basically it, hit the cars at the right angle. Um, absolutely, you could see them getting backed into the corner and as I said, there was an old saying about you rode it that hard to scrub the maker's name off the side of the tire. <laughs> and there were uh, the tires on the front of them, because they're 21-inch wheels, they were Avon Speedmasters. Yeah. Real old classic kind of tires. But honestly, I think, we I think I've only seen that name in photos from old Le Mans photos. Yeah, but but we, we were scrubbing the name off the side of the tire. And they were worn that flat, they were like slicks on the side. Wow. So it was, um, yeah. And... Um, I had a 1929 500 Rudge that we had converted to run on methanol, the same as the Speedway bikes, alcohol, 
dope or whatever you would like to call it. It's your dad's home brew is the fuel, isn't it? It was, it was, yes, yeah. You always knew when my dad had the home brew on the, the go because he would always light a fire in the back garden to mask the smell of it and burn some leaves so the neighbours couldn't tell. But I think everybody knew. Because yeah. <laughs> as I said, the, the local janitor or and, and a couple of the Kirk elders would come round and mm. they would be sitting there with my dad later on at night. And uh, there was an incident where one of the Kirk elders' wives had to come and collect them. And uh, <laughs> remember, she wasn't happy. But as I said, that's another story. I, w- I will withhold the names to protect the innocent. <laughs> it doesn't sound like anybody's innocent, but we'll withhold the no, names. It wasn't, all no, 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 no. Right, so straight into bikes, third generation. You and your brother are, like you said, you've taken the names off the side of the tyres. I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine that led to some fun car journeys home after the after the two of you going wheel to wheel for thirty odd laps a time. It it did, and um, we would get ourselves to the bike races either East Fortune, Knock Hill, or and we started going down to Donington and Cadwell and some of the British Championship vintage bike classes and things as well. But would East Fortune in particular, we would take my dad and we would deposit him next to the circuit up against the, the old gate that was there at the pit exit, out onto the circuit, and we would leave him there and go and jump on the bikes and go off and race. And he would obviously hear the commentary, mm-hmm. but he could tell which bike was in front. And if we were in a group, and Jim Oliver, that has the, well, unfortunately, Jim's gone. It's Wendy now. His daughter owns the bike shop in Denham. But Jim was standing with him one day, and the commentator was saying, oh, yeah, now that somebody or other came through, and he's leading the race, and it, it's Tom Gaynor that's in front, closely followed by Douglas Taylor, closely followed by, by Ronnie Fleming. And my dad goes, well, that's a load of bloody rubbish. He says, he says Douglas is leading that. And he was. The bike, the bike was in front. The commentator had got it wrong, and he just knew by the sound of the bike. As to, and this was a group of maybe about five of us, mm-hmm. all very, very close together. And uh, one of the older guys, um, Ernie Chapman was his name, where I had made a bit of a a youthful lunge underneath him going into a corner. Let's say the, the, gap, the gap was there when you did. It when was, you the went. gap was there. It was. It was. It looked fair game to me. Um, but I caught his throttle cable on the way past my handlebar end and I pulled it clean out the twist grip and it stuck his bike on full throttle and he's off over the grass on full chat and he was an old boy so I'm saying he's an old boy he he, he was probably yeah my age he was probably in his late 50s early 60s but as I said I'm 16 year old and just this gung-ho and but he came in and he, Mr. Taylor, Mr. Taylor, you're going to have to control your boys. They are out of control. And my dad was trying not to laugh. But he was, um, yeah, he said some of them got a bit emotional about some of the antics that we were up to for sure. So, but I think the vintage bike thing lasted a couple of years because we very quickly outgrew it. It, and, sound, and it sounds like you both outgrew it when you took podiums and lap records from every track you went to. It was a bit, but as I said, the bikes maybe aesthetically didn't look particularly pleasing. They were, they weren't polished, if you know what I mean. But mechanically, they were absolutely the run free. Everything was free on the bikes. The engines were right. They were uh, set up correctly. The carburation was spot on. All the things that you need to do to make a bike go fast. My dad would have an engine sitting on the bench and. 
I won't, I won't get too too technical and bore people to death, but there'd be nothing but a set of crankcases, a five-wheel and a piston and a barrel in it. And he'd take his thumb and he'd push the piston down the barrel. And unless it went sort of chuff, 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 up and down five times, he would take the engine to bits again, rebuild it until he got it to the point that it was that free. It would almost run around at least five times on its own. And then he would build the rest of the bike round about it. But the wow. basics, the heart of it had to be right. And wow. even to this day, with the bikes I'm building and I'm working and I'm doing, it's just, it's exactly the same principle. Make sure the innards of it is right, the bike's right, uh, and the rest will be right. Wow. So is that what you're doing in your daytime when you're not racing them? You're just building them in the in the free time, or are you? Uh, no. Uh, again, another story of what I do during the day is I'm trying to keep Mr. Robert Cullard right, um, touring car, legend, legend extraordinaire, mm-hmm. and, and, and his two kids. But um, no, I'm transport director for the Cullard group. So I look after a lot of trucks and roughy tufty mechanics and various other things and trying to get them to repair things to uh, either race car or race bike standards. Yeah, it's a bit, listen, it's just not going to happen, but I'm just not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you off with that because you've given some brilliant answers so far, so I won't ask you to delve deeper. No, so no. You, no. Talk, talk about your dad's bikes. Have you managed to keep any of them or do, have they been? Yes, have they been absolutely. Or? I, I've got... Um, I need to get all of this right now. <clears throat> I've got them lined up, so I'll put them into order. Uh, there's a parachute bike, which I got when I was four years old. It was one of those things that you would throw out an aeroplane with a parachute attached mm-hmm. to it, out arm them, something like that. Soldier would jump on it, fold the handlebars up, turn the petrol on, ride it until it ran out of fuel, and then jump off and go and shoot some people. Now, <laughs> um, my dad got one of those, chopped the handlebars down, lowered the seat on it and gave it to me at four years old. So that was my fourth birthday. So that was my, it wasn't my introduction to bikes because I had been running around sitting on the petrol tank and things of other yeah. people's bikes and learning how to ride them. But that was my first ever bike. So I've still got it. Wow. came from Stuart and Ian Thompson, who still has the car breaker scrapyard in Gala Shields. I can remember going to Selkirk for, to go and collect this bike. Put, wow. put, it in, put it in the back of the car and went back to Errolston. My dad had a bit of work to do on it to modify it to get it to all fit a four-year-old. So the hacksaw was out, a few modifications on it, and that's what I learned to ride a bike on. So I've still got that. Then I've got a 1927 350 BSA, which was my dad's very first bike, which he had when he was 16. Mm-hmm. Um Still got the 500 International Norton that my brother raced. I've still got the 500 Rudge that I raced. Um, I've still got another couple of International Nortons. Uh, one is a road going one. Uh, I've taken out, didn't uh, raise some money for, did some charity work uh, for the Blind Veterans Society down in Brighton and did a charity run from Morton on the Marsh down to Brighton with one of the old Nortons and oh, had, wow. a mega, had a megaphone on it. That must have um, been fun. They heard it coming from a long way, and a lot of the old boys down there loved it because they said, "My wife will take the Mickey out of me because I start making bike noises and saying what it did with all the gear changes, and it's gone ah It's just like this big 500 Norton, and uh, yeah, a lot of these old boys down there loved that. They they thought it was great. So I've I still got a lot of the old Norton, and the bikes that mean something to to me, as I said, it's got history behind them. As I said, either things that my, my dad's dragged out a bog somewhere, 
mm-hmm. and has uh, tidied them up, done them, and then they all run. Every one of them runs. All of them still go. All of them still go. And there was one of the Nortons, I think, uh, a couple of years ago. It, it hadn't run for 25 years. Mm-hmm. It had just been in the shed, took it out, put some fresh petrol in it, gave it a bit of a turnover, pumped some fresh oil through it, gave it a shove and away it went. Now, could you do that with something nowadays? It just wouldn't happen. It just, just wouldn't. So build quality and engineering and, and all of the rest of it. Yeah, it, it's the, the good stuff. But they weigh an absolute ton. Mm-hmm. They the, the do. I think they're probably maybe about 300 kilos, something like that, some of these big bikes. And, and some of the, the stuff that I'm racing now is maybe about 120 I was gonna say that's heavier than most cars now, three hundred kilos. Almost, yeah, yeah. As you said, yeah, you, you, you did not want one of them landing on top of you. Yeah. Def- you didn't want, didn't want one going in the back either. That's for sure. <laughs> definitely not. No, no, no. De- def- definitely not. So, bike racing, as I said, yeah, career. Where did it go? As I said, um, Alan Duffus, Alan Duffus motorcycles, and um, what are they? Kirkcaldy, Glenrothes. He had a lot of shops round about. Now, Alan, I think he was, I don't know, 10, 12 times Scottish motorcycle racing champion. Um, I was standing talking to him one day at Knock Hill, and mm. I don't know, he'd fallen off and done something else, but he, he couldn't ride the bike. And a conversation between him and I, where I had said, Give the bike to my brother. I said, Give him a go on it. So, so he did, and Douglas went out on this 350 Yamaha and just just annihilated. The only way to describe it was he annihilated the field. Yeah. And for the first year that he was on that bike, I would have said it didn't matter whether it was an international race at Donington, Silverstone, Brands, Brands, or wherever. Mm-hmm. If he if if he finished, he would win. But. Right. Uh, if he didn't finish, unfortunately, there was there was always a lot of carnage. He hadn't quite worked out how to stay on the thing. I was, um, was going to say, when you said if, I was like, that implies that it wasn't always the case. It, 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 it certainly wasn't, no, no. And as he said, he destroyed a lot of parts and bits and pieces on that bike. But um, won the Scottish Championship on it. Uh, beat a lot of world-class people at some of the big international races. So Alan, in his infinite wisdom, had thought, ah, I'll give him a 750 a race as well. And he probably took the 750 a lot better than he did to the smaller bike. Really? And um, absolutely just, just flew on this, this 750 Yamaha. And when, and, and when it was all right and whatever, completely untouchable, as I said, and I would describe it as it was scary to watch how fast this thing was. As I said, uh, producing, I remember it's about 150 brake horsepower on little narrow skinny tyres back in the 80s. And as I said, but it was just phenomenally fast. These things would do 200 mile an hour back then. And, and it, it was just, uh, there was a very small group of people that were really able to ride them to their max. Uh, and he was one of them for sure. Um, right. And Alan then had decided, he gave me a TZ125 Yamaha, which 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 I raced and managed to win a, the, the 125 Scottish Championship on. And then he had helped me out with a, a, a 250 as well. I, was, I always liked the smaller, less powerful bikes, where my brother, for sure, he liked the, the thing that would rip your arms off. And uh, yeah, there were... 
animals. That's the only way to describe them, absolute animals. And it was only the brave of the brave that, that really raced them that hard. Wow. Um, so again, that, that was probably about 1981 to 80, 81, 82. Uh, I, I, again, uh, part of the story, it, it's, it's difficult. It's 1982 was not a good year. Um, mm -hmm. In the space yeah. of the, the one year, um, we'll, we'll, we'll get into. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to interrupt you. Sorry there, because it's a great story. I, I want to get into. I want to get because I wanted to describe your career in sort of the three parts, the three chapters. Okay. Yeah. So, no. No. Yeah. yeah. No. Other because we were because we were talking about the bikes you owned still and the ones you had, and I didn't. I didn't know if you were finished that. There. Did you? Have you gone? Because you were talking I just, about. I just, I just. I just went off pace like a do. <laughs> but the thing it's, is, you, the thing is, you did, and it was such a, a brilliant story, and I was like. I want to hear the story more than the question. So, but the, yeah. so I want to ask you quickly: the, the two bikes you said you had, you said you still had your brother's Norton, the 500, and yes, you 500 Rugster. Are those? Is that the one two, the two from that season where you yes. were going head to head? Yes, absolutely. Bikes? Still, still got them. Still wow. got them. Wow, that's incredible. So. You should, you, you definitely need to get them somewhere for people to see and then find some. Someone must have an old video clip of it kicking about somewhere. Um, I think, I think there is. I think I think that there's definitely stuff out there on YouTube of me racing in the 1980s at Donington and places like that in ITV World of Sports, Superbike stuff and things. Um, but I'm sure of there's, there's, there's some of the older historians that like to follow some of the classic bike stuff and things. They've got many's a picture and um, eight millimeter film from Knock Hill that they look taken back in the day and stuff and things. So. Um, I have seen clips of it here and there, de definitely. So, no, st st still, still got them. Wow. So, before we talk about your pro career and all the incredible stuff that you've already alluded to, and we're definitely going to get back in because, like you said, you were winning, you were winning championships. Like you said, it took you what six or seven race meets to find your feet, and then you were just, you were just taking victories home as if it was the only way to, only thing to do at a race weekend. But before um... we but before we get into that, I want to talk about the expensiveness of motorsport. Like we touched on it earlier about how people are paying five grand to go to a track day and do a testing. But so you know, you'll know yourself like when kids go to carts and then they go to things like that. And I find it quite interesting when people, because a lot of people get into racing later if they don't do it when they're really young. Because I, I don't know if you ever seen it. Top Gear did an episode on it where they had they gave themselves a budget of a price of golf clubs. I think it was like nine hundred quid or something for a price of golf clubs. Yeah, and they went and they went racing. Obviously, they didn't do it on bikes. But how would it? How would a younger person get into bike racing? Do you do the whole karting route, or the, the, there's a few different routes to it, and, and there's a few different trains of thought on it. Yeah, the traditional route at the moment is that the, the kids get into mini bike racing, mm -hmm. pocket bikes, in on indoor go kart circuits. So they're they're riding little uh, I don't know fifty, not even fifty cc engines. And they're running around there at five years old, wow. learning the craft, just just learning the lines, working out what the throttle does, working out grip, what they need to do with braking, just racing, El elbow elbow to people. And um, Alan McAllen Alan McIntosh, um, who runs a lot of the kids up in Scotland, he provided a fantastic platform and opportunity for kids to come through that series. So kids that are at the top of the game at the moment, you're, um, Lewis Rollo, uh, Roy Skinner, uh, there's a very long list of names, ones that's all come through that route, where as kids they've raced 
pocket bikes, mini bikes, or indoor go-kart circuits. And then eventually, they've then progressed onto slightly bigger bikes. It's a 13, 14-year-old that can run around Knock Hill East Forks and places like that, and they're allowed loose out with the adults. Um, it's expensive, as you said. It's got the word motor in front of it, which I think should be replaced by must-have money. Um, because it's a price tag. It is. Anything involving the word motor, you just know it's going to cost you. And yeah. there's different ways to do it. I think the um, the CB500 Championship in Scotland at the moment is one of the biggest entries on the Scottish grid. The uh, CB500 class within um, Dave Stewart's Thundersport Championship. I think at Donington there was, there was about 130 CB500s all there, all racing, wow. all trying to compete for the top 32 slots on the grid on the A final. And incredibly competitive. And your um, Leon Haslam, um, James Toesland, and again, um, Ryan Vickers. There's lots of big names that's all come through this CB500 class. Now, even today, you can go and buy a good CB500 for about 1800 to two grand. Right. Buy, buy the bike. You can then go and race it at Thunder Sport. You'll need a new set of tyres. You'll need some spares, do bits and pieces. But for, for a race weekend, it's probably around 650 quid for your three days racing. Right. And and that's, that, that's what you will need to be able to go racing. Get the laps in, get the experience. That's the first run on the ladder. So coming from the mini bike series that you would go through, as I said, lad and dad, going to a cart and circuit with a small bike in the back of the car, that's what you're there progressing on to. And, um, and from there, yeah, just keep shifting the decimal point one place to, 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 <laughs> to the right all the time because when you get into the, the even the British superbike teams, yeah, you're, you're having to take very, very big budgets to the team to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. But... There is so many different classes, um, it's diluted it quite a bit. Where, but back in the day, in the 1980s, I think, where there was a, a 125, a 250, a 350, and a superbike class. And if you were in pure racing, that was it. There was nothing else. If you wanted to do something different, you raced a production bike. You bought a, an LC, which was a road-going 250 or 350 Yamaha, took the lights off it, put some race tyres on it, tweaked it a little bit and away you went and you went racing a road bike. So it was a production bike class. But oh. but now there is so many different classes. Now, I've always had an interest in things racing, but there's so much of it, I struggle to follow it. So how an average person coming into it can try and make sense of it. Good good luck to them. Yeah. Oh, I try because I'm, I'm, I'm an advocate for a few sports. I love I have like a few that are my personal favourites, and even just trying to keep up with three or four, not even to the in-depth level of a a diehard for a specific sport, is unbelievable. Yeah, no, no, def- definitely, as I said. But it's um, so there's a few different routes to get into the motorsport game. Um, I, I think it's great. I think the paddock life for young kids, where they're all running about there playing at night on their mountain bikes, and it just just come wheelie competitions and, and all the things to do. It's keeping them off the street. It's giving them an interest and all the rest of it. And I suppose you've got to look at the positives. They're going to spend all of their money on motorbikes and stuff. So they've no money for drinking drugs. <laughs> it's a very good way to look at it. 
I know my kid's not going to do anything stupid because he's skint. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Wow. Well, definitely there. Well, if any young listeners get involved, get in your dad and lad car and then get yourself to the CB500 in Scotland. Dave Stewart Thundersport, that's the name. Free promo, yeah. Dave Stewart Thundersport. That's right, yeah. There you go. Right, so I want to talk about the beginning of your pro career. And I mean, I say your pro career. It was back in the, the 70s and 80s when you first started. But you pretty much, as you said, got your first bike at 16. Your dad gave it to you, built it. Somehow built the perfect engine without being able to see the thing and then still made it run like the clappers. So how did that go? Just how was the first few years as a pro driver slash successful driver rider? Well, I don't know about pro. I was working <laughs> as um, a, a mechanic. Uh, originally started working at um, TB Oliver's in Denham, along, mm. along with Steve Hislop. So multiple TT winner and everything else. And yeah, uh, absolute world class. Um, I think. Rob McKelney, who ran the Yamaha team that Steve raced for for a little while, would describe him as a flawed genius. <laughs> On his day, yeah, some very very special. But I suppose in some ways I'm not that dissimilar to myself because if all of the ducks didn't line up, it wasn't right, and and he, yeah. he wouldn't do as well as he should do. And I kind of adopt that approach where I would say even today and even going back to the 1980s, if all of the ducks lined up, look out, I would have a go and I would have a go. At, it didn't matter who it was, whether it's Carol Fogarty or or whoever it was, I, I would be in there and I'd be in the mix. Yeah. Um, but if it wasn't right, I wasn't right. I wouldn't push the bike to the, the, the 110% that you needed to do to be able to get to the front of some of that kind of stuff. So the, the results went up and down a little bit, I think, when I sort of hit international level and did some of the British Championship stuff, what is now BSB, mm -hmm. and not quite as consistent as you'd want to be, but that was where I was trying to do everything myself. And I think where... Um, you can't. You've got to surround yourself with good people. And it's something that I often say is if I could go back and do it again, what would I do different? Yeah, I'd, I would employ a top-notch mechanic to, to come and help me and do a lot of the stuff for me. And oh, so you were going down as a proper one-man team at the weekend to the meet engineer mechanic? It was. Yeah, that, that was it. I had some mates that would come with me that would, that would come and help. And mm -hmm. as he said, and, and away we'd go, go, go and race. So... And this is where it progressed from, as he said, the vintage bike racing. Alan Duffus gave me a bit of sponsorship with some Yamahas. And then uh, ultimately, uh, Dave Christie, who ran a, a driving school, um, ex-chief of police for uh, Fife and somewhere else, when he took retirement, he set up a driving school, teaching people to drive. So he had wow. dozen, dozens of cars in Glenrothes, Kirkcaldy, Dunfermline, all around about, all teaching people to drive. Everybody paid cash back in the day, and um, Davey was always quite happy to um, help me out with buying bikes, spares for bikes, and all of the rest. And to be honest, I to this day, I still owe Davey Christie so much, and I'm so grateful for what he did for me, because mm -hmm. without it, I could never have done it. It's just, it would never have happened, where he threw an obscene amount of money at bike racing and helped out quite a few different people. Mm -hmm. And... Um, 
as I said, that, that was where it sort of progressed a bit. But I was still doing an awful lot of stuff on my own. I had a guy, um, Hamish Jamieson, his name was originally from Shetland, um, did an apprenticeship in Edinburgh as an engineer, but he ended up helping me. He was good friends with my cousin, Graham. Uh, again, another tailor with another history. Uh, he was Scottish production bike champion and ever so, as I said, just another tailor that raced. So lunacy runs deep in the family, I can tell you. Um, I think you're confusing lunacy and success there. If you said you're consistently plowing it into the tire wall at first lap, I got yeah, you're all lunatics. But yeah, yeah. I mean, pe- people say, oh, these these guys that race motorbikes, they must all be mad. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, I just think, as I said at the beginning, I'm just just a lot of like-minded idiots that all like running around about and 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 having a ball and getting the adrenaline rush and everything else. It's exactly. it's it's it, it, it's yeah it's it, it, it's a special group special group of people and there's all sorts of reasons that people do it you're sitting there on the grid and some people will be there and you can see they're just about being sick with nerves like the james hunt thing where he'd be regularly thrown up before a race and you think why would you put yourself through that why why on earth do people do that but as he said, it, it's a bit of the buzz afterwards when it, when it's all finished. You can't wait to go and do it all again. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it says at the gate when you come in, when you get your ticket, when you sign on the entries, motorsport is dangerous. And I think that there's a lot of people that read too much into it. As he said, it's um, but try try not not try to make it too safe because it'll never be safe. Yeah. The speeds that you're going, when that's when something goes wrong, and if if you're hurtling down Bray Hill at 160 or mile an hour and you fall off, the likelihood is it's not going to be a good outcome. Yeah. It's, it's it's not. It's going to hurt in some way. It is. It, you fall off at, at Donington going down Craner Curves at 120 odd mile an hour, and you're likely going to land, end up on your backside, sliding up the grass at 120 mile an hour, and provided that you've not landed very awkwardly or you've not hit anything you're going to pick yourself up and walk away again you'll have a bit of a gravel rash and a bit sore but mm-hmm. as i said it's you've got to minimize the risk keep the keep, keep it under control don't don't let your emotions take over and and let your uh, inability run away with itself the, the throttle works both ways <laughs> and, and it doesn't have to be on um, full chat all the time. As I, I, feel, I feel that's that, that's destined to be on a t-shirt at some point. The throttle goes both ways. It does. It does very much so. So now nowadays it's called traction control, where uh, the young kids just whack the throttle back 100% and hope the electronics do it all for you. <laughs> uh, going back to yeah, as he said, racing in 1980s and things, there was no traction control. There was no nothing. Ever everything was just as I said earlier, the seat of your pants. If you've got good seat of the pants feel, and with my father and having engines and things that would blow up, I've always been reasonably mechanically sympathetic. So whether it's <laughs> driving a road car or whether it's racing a bike, you just don't drive it to destruction. When you feel things starting to go wrong, just nurse it a little bit. Be a little bit sympathetic with it, and it'll keep going, and you'll get the finish. And again, now later in life, racing. Uh, for sure, I've won races over this last couple of years where I've nursed things, I've been sympathetic to it, and I've gone, you know what, sometimes you need to lose the corner to win the race, where the young guy's gone whizzing in underneath me and another couple of laps up 
round the circuit is he said he's lying in heap somewhere. I thought, oh, well, that wasn't going to last. Yeah. And other times you've got to lose the race to win the championship. Mm-hmm. Where you could go somewhere, go to Donington on, on any one given weekend, and somebody has got it better than you. The bike's better set up. They've not had a shit week at work where everything's all gone wrong and they've had nothing to do all week other than just train and make sure that they're ready for Donington. And they've rocked up and they're going to be difficult to beat. And sometimes you've just got to let them have it and take the second. I think the No Limits Championship, I think I finished um, second, I think it was either eight or nine times. I can tell you right now, I've got it right in front of me, it was eight times. Eight times. Oh, there, there you go. So it's the consistency and sometimes let the other person have it. And mm. I won a few races in it, but at the same time, it was sometimes I had to make smart decisions. And mm just just go for it and let them take the race win so as i said sometimes you got to lose the corner to win the race sometimes you've got to lose the race to win the championship and if you're all, all gung, gung-ho it doesn't always work exactly you can't you can't go 100 miles per hour and well not 100 miles per hour is a bad example but you can't go full throttle around every corner is what i'm trying to say you can't no no sometimes sometimes less is more yeah i don't know i don't know if you're familiar with golf i mean you probably know who jack nichols is the jack nicholas the golfer Yes, yeah, no, for sure, yeah. No, your, your, your mentality is very similar to his from what, just the way you're saying it there. It's very much a, because I remember listening to him and it was during the Masters and he very said, he went, I looked at the board and I remember if I was in the lead, I didn't think I need to keep getting further shots ahead. He went, I just know that they've got to push to try and beat me, so I just need to keep making par and I'm fine. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, you, you're very much that, you're very much just a, if I just keep going slow and it's almost like the classic slow and steady will win the race, isn't it? It <laughs> the is. Yeah. We're getting on. It is. No, d- definitely. Mm-hmm. And I, I think going back to my uh, uh, late teens, early twenties, when I'm starting to race and things, that uh, um, I, I adopted a little bit of a similar approach, but but not enough of it. Mm-hmm. And as I said, where. Um, I think over that period of time where I was racing, I was, I was definitely racing against the monkey in my head where <laughs> it, it, it was loose, telling you all sorts of things. And as he said, will, willpower, determination, having the ability to switch off to the outside world, to all of the things that was going on at that time. And um, you can only do that for a set period of time. You can't keep that up. And... Were, were lots of events that had happened in the early 1980s and then I continued racing and to have the mental uh, capacity to deal with lots of different things that life throws at you as he said to compete at that level when it's not going right it does become very very difficult so mm-hmm. now when I'm coming back and having another go at it if I'm having a bad day I'll laugh at it and I'll just sit my wife come on I'm going to go and have a beer and sit down and have a, have a chat and we'll just, just so take it on the chin and don't worry about it and we'll pick the pieces up in the next week fortnight or however long it is until I'm out again as I said and don't don't let it destroy you it's, yeah. it's not the be all and end all it's not going to be MotoGP we're doing this for fun and um, I need to go to work on Monday morning <laughs> That's it. That's the important thing. And I think a lot of people could learn from that in every sport. Of, you've got to remember you're here for fun. And at the end of the day, everybody just goes back to work on Monday morning anyway. 
It is, yeah, yeah. And, and some people take it way, way too serious. I've seen lots of the, the trophy parents who are screaming and shouting at their kids because they've not tried hard enough or not not done what they, they, they should have done. And um, I think over about a 10-year period in my son race go-karts, I think mm-hmm. it was probably only twice, I think, that we really had crossed words for a hard system. What the hell are you doing? Mm-hmm. Just you need to get a grip and sort yourself out because your your head's just not in it. And yeah. and yeah, he, he kind of had a word with himself and then carried on again. But as I said, not racing myself. As I said, life takes over and all the rest of it. As I said, he he won yeah won the British Kart Championship, won a European Championship, and finished fifth in the world with stuff that engines and bits and pieces that I had put together and done and managed to to run. So as I said, but that's another story in itself. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, that's for, fortunately, as I said, he he chose to get involved in uh, four wheels and, and and not two. He did have a very short period of time on a motocross bike and uh, did quite well at it, but but just uh, it didn't seem to light his fire. So um, and this like, it sounds like to, he was alright with four wheels as well, to be fair to. Yeah, yeah, but going back to the trophy parent thing, we were at a schoolboy motocross thing and he's leading the local club championship mm-hmm. and. He had said to me one day, but oh, I've had enough now. I think we'll we'll go swimming or we'll go do something else now. And it's halfway through the day. So I'm loading the bike in the back of the van. There was a couple of other dads going, where are you going? I said, I'm going home now. I said, I'm going to get his sisters out swimming or doing whatever. I said, so we're going to go and see what they're doing. He says, but oh, you can't let him do that. I said, I can and I will. Because if he's not wanting to do it, I said, that's up to him. I said, if he wants to do it, I said, I'll help him do it. But if he doesn't want to do it, I'm not going to force him to do it. It's fun. Exactly. And just walked away from it. And exactly. But some some of the people, as I said, go-karting in particular, they're spending hundreds of thousands of pounds on their 10, 12-year-old kids in the space of a year to try and win British championships and all the rest of it. And it is into hundreds of thousands that they're spending. And the pressure that they put on these kids is unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. I, I saw the likes of Lando Norris, George Russell, all of these kind of people. They came through the carton world when I was involved in it. But very grounded, the kids wanted to race. They wanted to be there. They wanted to be successful. And they wanted to do whatever it took to try and win. Complete different mindset. And that's why they're in Formula One now. Is because that naturally they had that in them, and mm-hmm. both their parents was keen for them to do well, and provided the correct environment for them to do well in. But neither Mark Norris or, or, or any George Russell's parents or anyone else never once did I see them shouting at them, screaming at them, telling them that they've got to do well. They would they would give them a hug if they did well, and again give them another hug if they had a bad day. And, and just went through it, and, and the kids thrived on that. But the ones that were been screamed and shouted at and all the rest of it, they're only doing it to try and please the parents for yeah, all exactly. the wrong reasons. So it's a strange world, the motorsport game that, that we're in, and it doesn't matter whether it's cars or bikes. I see a lot of similarities between the two, and I think young kids coming up through the racing world and things, they said, you're right in what you said, you've got to do it, because you're enjoying it. It is fun. If it's fun, it's easy. 
and they will do a lot better at it. I was going to say, yeah. I, always, I always played better when I was having fun, so I imagine that's a very transferable experience to everything, especially something like motorsport. Definitely, without a doubt. It's got to be fun. And as I said, at the age of 58, I'm now having fun. And, and that's what I do. On a, on a, on a, on a good day, I'll, I'll have a go. If I'm having a bad day, I'll go and take the piss out of some of the like-minded idiots running around in circles with me and um, just have a laugh about it. Uh, and usually they're much younger than me. Usually end up taking the pee out of me a lot more. But what do they say? Um, if, if, if don't give it if you can't take it. Exactly. If you can't laugh at yourself, you've got no right yeah, to laugh. Yeah, I, I, I do regularly. For, fortunately, I have to. Yeah, my wife doesn't let me off with it. If I start to get too serious, she'll 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 have a stern word with me. I I I feel we must know the same people because all my friends will never let me get any humble in that. No, every, no. every every week when this goes out, they go, are your usual three listeners that all happen to live in your same household watching the podcast this week? Stuff yes. like that. Keep me humble. Yeah, that's right. Amazing. So I want to touch on 1982, as you said before I stopped you the first time. And like you said, it was, I don't want to tell the story because they're your words and I want you to share them. So if you wouldn't mind picking off in 1982 or how you Yeah, big, big part of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very difficult part of it as they said and, and this it, it, it affected everything that I did all the way through even to, to today how, how things I look at life and things that you've got to do and bits and pieces I said 1982 um, yeah my brother's got a TZ750 a TZ500 um, had gone to Donington, beat some of the the guy Bob Smith, that was the current British champion. Steve Parrish, that was um, Sheen's teammate. Uh, Keith Ewan, world front runner. As I said, uh, Wayne Gardner, a lot of the Americans that came over. Yeah, as he said, and he's running at the front end of that. So Sheen is in the latter stages of his career and. As I said, Douglas is just starting to make a name for himself on the British Championship scene and some of the internationals and winning some very, very big races. Mm-hmm. Um, um, sponsored by Alan Duffus at the time. Uh, we both were. Um, and I would go and do the support races either on a TZ125 Yamaha or a 250. And mm-hmm. back in the day, no electronics with scanning and signing on or anything. But you had to be 18 years old to be able to race international level. And mm-hmm. Again, a bit of a dodge went on here um, where Douglas would go and sign on. And then 10 minutes later, I would go back in and sign on with his race license. Now, I had a race license of my own, but I, I wasn't 18. Mm-hmm. And technically, I wasn't really eligible to race. But I would go and do the international races with him and just sign on as him. And But... They had my name down in the programme as me, but mm-hmm. somehow or another, as I said, they, they never actually put the two together. So I did several races before I was 18 when I probably shouldn't have done, but good experience, good experience. You can't get away with that now, but I think, as I said, I was I was finishing within the top 10. I, I, I was there or thereabouts, so um, I wasn't holding people up or making rookie silly mistakes in it where I would stand out in the crowd, uh, but... Just that that year, th- things were starting to evolve. Some of the bigger teams were starting to look at what Douglas was doing. And uh, Alan Duffus had took on the ownership and started to run Knock Hill. 
and decided to do a, a reverse direction race at Knock Hill. Um, changed the circuit and whatever happened on that day, we, we still really don't know. Um, Stuart Burkhart was uh, the other guy's name. His, his bike would not start. It pushed it down pit lane, pushed it out onto the circuit. And there's a blend line, they call it, which you should never cross, which mm. basically keeps you safe, keeps you over the, the right-hand side of the circuit. But he crossed it and he shoved the bike straight over the wrong side of a blind hill. And unfortunately, Douglas was coming up the, 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 the hill from the other side, flat on the tank, 150, 160 mile an hour, and collected Stuart Burkhart slap in the middle of the circuit. Um, the, the, the absolute carnage it was it, it literally looked like a bomb had gone off uh, with just bits of bike and uh, all over the place uh, um, and it was uh, and Stuart died at the scene in, instantly just with, with, with his injuries uh, Douglas yeah, after what seemed like an eternity at the circuit, a catalogue of disasters at the circuit where the, the ambulance wasn't taxed, MOT'd, insured, that didn't want to drive out onto the road to take him down to the hospital. The oxygen cylinders in the ambulance didn't work. We had friends running around the paddock trying to uh, open up the oxygen in the ambulance with welding spanners. And mm. it, it, it was just unbelievable. Uh, the paramedics, couldn't get his helmet off. Um, he was choking. I ended up having to take his helmet off him at, at the scene. Uh, my, my, my dad's there wandering around the pits, not really knowing what's going on. And mm -hmm. obviously completely knew, knew that something horrendous was going on, but not quite aware of it all. Um, and Douglas ended up in Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. Um, after about a, a week with serious head injuries, started to make a bit of progress. They started to take him out of the induced coma that he was in. Mm -hmm. um, and but something went wrong. We really don't know what. But but he he took a a, a, a turn for the worse and never really recovered from that. Um, so over the next two years, just gradually deteriorated mm -hmm. and. This is what I was saying earlier about the mindset and having the ability to, to switch off from things. Now, mm -hmm. it says on the ticket and when you sign on and you get a pass at the gate and before you go out onto the circuit, there's bloody great big signs everywhere. It says motorcycle racing is dangerous. Mm -hmm. I know it's dangerous. Uh, we had travelled many a thousand miles together in vans. We had seen various other accidents i think in the late 70s early 80s the attrition rate of riders was quite high mm -hmm. and um you just think why do people go out and do that we do it's just just what we do um and there was there was lots of discussions on 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 what if something happens and etc etc and what what would you do if you're hurt or what would you do if you're hurt etc so Mm -hmm. uh, we had both said, listen, just just do what you think is right, what you want to do. If you want to carry on, you carry on. And uh, so uh, that 
I, I made a decision. Um, I didn't race the next weekend, which was at Ingolston in Edinburgh, which is around the Scottish Championship, and I, I didn't go and race there. But two weekends after that was um, East Fortune, and I decided that I was going to go back and race. Mm-hmm. So I, I did, and uh, won the one two five race, and um, I thought, yeah, that was the right thing to do. But been able to switch everything off because it, it was very very difficult, all very raw at that period of time. So managed to make it to the end of the season. Now. I had touched on, I was good friends with Steve Hislop, but mm-hmm. probably better friends with his younger brother, who was Gary. And Gary and I had teamed up and we went and raced in Ireland together and did a few other big races together. Now, I went off to Donington at the end of the year in October to do a round of what was the Marlborough Clubman's series, which was the biggest club series in the UK. And mm-hmm. um, fell off, landed on my shoulder, dislocated my shoulder, broke my wrist and whatever. But... As I said, yeah, got away with it. Gary decided that he had been leading the Sellith Club Championship, went to Sellith. He fell off, landed on his head. Unfortunately, the bike spun round and hit him, and he was killed outright at the scene. Wow. So, and uh, Jock Taylor, who was world sidecar champion in 1982, as well as, I think, second cousin or there's a relationship in there somewhere along the line. <laughs> and um, he had gone to Amatra in, in Finland and uh, was was killed at Finland. So 1982 was not a good year for sure within the bike race world. So uh, 1983, I decided to carry on and I had thought so Alan Duffus I think was very very upset by the whole thing blamed himself for it for providing the bikes providing the circuit mm-hmm. um, and I look back on it, it it was nothing more than a bizarre chain of events that he could have stepped off the road and been hit by a bus mm-hmm. and for whatever happened, Stuart Berker, the bike not starting, why he pushed the thing to the wrong side of the line, what the marshal was doing to let him out, uh, why they changed the circuit direction. As I said, too many ifs and buts. It's just one of these things that happened. And would you have said, is it, is it because we were motor racing? No, I, no, I can no. rationalise it and go, do you know what? You could have been hit by a brick dropping off a building. It was bizarre. It was so bizarre as that. It wasn't anything to do with the fact that we were motor racing. It was just a bizarre chain of events, and, and that's what happened. So, ni- 1983, um, started to look at what it was I was going to do. I still had the 125 Yamaha. Um, along came Davy Christie, who had said, I've got a spare bike. And he gave me a 350 Yamaha. So, in 1983, whilst I can only describe as watching my brother slowly die, I won the 125 and 350 Scottish Championships. Simultaneously? Um, yes, in the same year. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there was all sorts of things going on. And I remember one of the races, it might have been in 84 by this time, but I was certainly vying with Howard Selby for the Scottish 350 Championship. Mm-hmm. And we were tied on points going into the, the, the second last round. And he went on to be European champion and, and, and all sorts of this. Had Howard, fantastic career that he had. But I'm racing it against him in the 1980s. And 
Um, I was sitting on the bike at East Fortune on the, on the dummy grid, all ready to go out to sort of do battle for the, the Scottish Championship. And this this unknown girl comes up to me and says, oh, well, good luck, Roddy. I uh, hope you do well. It's an awful shame about your brother, isn't it? And no. I'm sitting there on the, on the grid just before I went out. And the guy that was mechanicing for me uh, at the time, um, Hamish, I just handed him the bike and kind of just wandered off and um, had a had a uh, I don't know I just I had a serious word with myself in my helmet and I had just just as he said sometimes as he said take a breath get a grip and as I said put the monkey back in its box the chimp, the chimp back in its box yeah it was yeah because it, it was out screaming for sure it, it, it was out and um. I didn't win the race, but I'd finished second to it. But I didn't really lose out on any points, didn't make any mistakes or whatever. But that that, that was a real tough moment where mm-hmm. you think, why am I here? Why am I doing this? And went to the last round in at Knock Hill. And we were exactly tied on points. And it didn't matter if I was going to finish. Um, if I had crashed and didn't finish, I was still going to finish second in the championship. If I beat Howard, I was going to win the championship. Or if he beat me, he would win the championship. Or if he crashed, it didn't matter. He was still going to finish second. There was nobody within a, the points close enough to do us any real harm. So it was just down to him and I. Mm-hmm. And um, as I said, with everything that was all going on, uh, the guy that sponsored Howard was Jim Bald and... Um, Dave, Dave Christie, the fellow that sponsored me, and there was a big, big group of people. And there was some of this all, only came to light after the event. But mm-hmm. anyway, I started the race. Howard got away a long way in front of me. <clears throat> I got held up on the first lap. Um, I think it was about a 15-lap race or something like that. And um, the first five laps didn't make any inroads into him at all. There was maybe about a, a five-second gap between where he was and where I was, and we both run around about the same kind of speed. Nothing changed. And I can remember thinking to myself on the bike, and I thought, well, if I crash, I'm still going to finish second. But if I don't crash, I've got to beat him, mm-hmm. and I've got to take the win. There is no ifs or buts about it. And it was a bit of a, <clears throat> yeah, I, I used Douglas as a motivational tool for, for then because I had thought, what would he have done? I would have thought, well, they wouldn't be fanning round about here, and they would have just bloody sent it in at 100 mile an hour and sod the consequences. So that's what it did. So I think it took me about three laps to catch them, catch them, pass them. And Howard said afterwards, he says, never ever in a million years are going to catch you. He says, you passed me. He says, somewhere where I never expected you to overtake me. And he says, I wasn't going to live with you. So the fellow that sponsored Howard had <clears throat> bought a whole load of champagne and all sorts to celebrate um, Howard's success. <laughs> and, and, and and fair play to him. He was crying and he handed me over. He says, there you go. He says, you deserve that. And wow. unbeknown to me, Davey Christie had put a, a, a sizable amount of money on the fact where he was standing at the side of the circuit after about lap four and somebody had said, oh, that's it. It's Howard's. And Davey's gone, no. He says, I bet it isn't. And the fellow said, I bet it is. And they had exchanged a large sum of money and uh, yeah, do you, do, you sure. have, do you have a figure or? Uh, it, it, it was it was into thousands. Wow. And back in the day, then that was a lot of money. And 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 Davey at the end of the day gave me five hundred quid. He says, "There you go." He says, that, "That's your win bonus for it." 
So if you go back to the early 1980s, I suppose that's like giving somebody 10 grand now. Wow. Where he had just done a deal with somebody at the side of the circuit. And it transpires that the elderly gentleman that he did that with was Johnny Ray's grandfather. Now, Jonathan Ray, who is now five times world superbike champion. I recognise the name, yeah. It was Jonathan Ray's grandfather that had to pay out to Davy Christie. Wow. So I thought, but yeah, that, that, that cut the seasons was, 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 was real tough. And then, yeah, I think my brother eventually died two years after the accident and um, my, my family didn't want anything to do with racing and yeah. the support that was there then wasn't and I was almost going against everything with they, they didn't say don't do it but they certainly didn't make things easy for me to race so, so I, I, I did it on my own mm-hmm. and but I, I was very very fortunate because I had some very good friends round about me who I'm still very, very good friends with to this day. Uh, Ian Wilson uh, went to school with him. His son is now World Downhill Mountain Bike Championship. Um, Reese Wilson. I know, so, the, I know the name. I'm trying to think if he's the one from around here. Yeah, he's, he's up, he does lots of training and stuff up around in Leighton Peebles and mm. whatever. So he's originally from West, uh, from Gordon. As mm. I said, went to school with um Ian and as I said yeah uh, again there's a big long story about things that we could never ever write or mention that we, that we did when we were younger I'm gonna I'm gonna have to get you all together for a reunion on one of these and I just won't hit record and then we'll just oh, chat yeah I'll I know just, I'll yeah. just sit here and listen yeah there'll be a, be a few stories come out there yeah J- Jimmy Shanks who's still racing to this day now Jimmy's in his 60s and still going quite well um but set himself up in business at Blink Bonnie Quarry uh, Jimmy helps quite a few of the young racers and things now coming through. Just just a little bit of sponsorship on the quiet here and there. Um, helped Steve Kershaw with the sidecar. Oh, uh, Steve Kershaw is now competing for world championship status, multiple British champion winner. Wow. And as uh, I said, Jimmy's helped him. And as uh, I said, but we were all friends when we were younger. Mm-hmm. And we're still very good friends to, to this day. And I suppose sometimes we don't see one another or, or or the group of us for several months at a time but if we go back at Christmas or the middle of the summer or whatever it is as you said we, we meet up and, and it doesn't take very long to just carry on where we were left off so the witty banter uh, good light-hearted piss taking and everything else it, it doesn't take long to all spring back into life where um, well as we call them Ian, Ian and things came to his fortune I did a race there, I think, 2017, just coming back on a CB500. And they said he came there to help me. And it just was so easy because I didn't have to tell him what to do. He just naturally did it. He kind of knew what I was after and all the rest of it. So it was, um, no, I, I'm, I was very, very lucky with the group of people that I had round about me at, at that time because it really was a very, very difficult time. Mm-hmm. No, quite rightly. And then, I mean, the way you speak about uh, the way you speak about your brother and the way you've spoken about him for the past hour is more than a testament to the man he was. So I'm only jealous I didn't get to meet him, and then I could add both of you in the chat. But you've spoken highly enough about him. Yeah, it was just uh, there, was, there was lots of things as I said where um, again this opens up another big can to do with bo- both my sister and my brother were were very high academic achievers, 
and uh, my brother served his apprenticeship as a, a precision engineer uh, for Robertson's Bakery Engineering in Gala. He won the Scottish Engineering Apprenticeship of the Year Award, I think, in about, again, 1981, 1982, something like that. And his engineering skills, unbelievable, as I said, were, um, uh, yeah, my, my sister and my brother, they, they were very good on that. School, uh, again, it's, it's, it's another story. I'm dyslexic. Um, I changed schools at the age of 14. Uh, went to Gallashields Academy uh, because they were much better placed to be able to deal with somebody like me and had the the support with the teachers and everything that was there. But yeah, I, I changed schools at 14 year old. And I could barely write and read my own name, uh, but managed to come out of Gallashields Academy with some uh, O-levels hires and get some other qualifications and everything then all done with the aid of a scribe. Um, so, but the, the 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 teachers and things at Errolston School that I'd gone to at the time, they were living in the past. Their comments, my mother was, um, oh, um, oh, Mrs. Taylor, uh, all, all your children can't be high achievers. And Susan Hampshire at the time was doing this massive campaigning for dyslexia, raising the awareness of it. My mum was um, retraining as a health visitor. She was the local district nurse, midwife and various other things and had gone to Aberdeen University and was re retraining as a midwife, sat in a lecture somewhere and had heard all about Susan Hampshire and her work about dyslexia. And she says it was like a slap in the face. She says she had never, she said the, the dawning of realisation as to what was wrong with me and why I hadn't picked up on various other bits and pieces. Again, it's another story. I remember sitting in a class of primary seven and um, the, we, we did a quiz at Christmas and I was always putting my hand up, a general knowledge quiz, and absolutely just, just nailed all of these general knowledge questions. And the teacher says to me at the end of it, do you know, Roderick, she says, if you would put as much effort into your classwork as you do stuff like that, you would really do quite well. Why did the penny not drop? Yeah, as he said, and ch change school, and and they were they were geared up to to, to deal with it. But as I said, well, now nowadays with um, autocorrect and all of the powers that's there in Microsoft Word, Word, it makes life so much easy. As he said, mm -hmm. I can sit and dictate things. Although Siri, um, I think has still got an issue with a Borders accent. Uh, he, he's not quite sure about that. He still comes up with strange words for things. But uh, the, the tools are now all available to make life much easier for me. Oh, uh, trust me, I'm my spelling and grammar is atrocious, and Microsoft Word and Grammarly and all the things they saved me many an embarrassing message that I sent out. Quite recently, I sat there, I typed something out, and it either had a blue squiggly line under it, a green line, or a red line, or something else under it. And I'm thinking, oh, dear God, I can't be that bad, am I? And then I realized it was on an American setting. And I yes. thought, oh, yeah, it's not so bad after all. Once I'd actually got the thing set up properly, it wasn't quite as bad. I know everything that ends in eyes, they try to change to put a Z in it. And you think, oh, well, that's right, yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I wanted to. So we've spoken about 1982, the year that the year that we don't want to speak about when we can help. But then after it, you had a 28-year break from motor racing, or a short while after you had a 28-year break from motor racing. Yeah. Um. What did I do? Um. I think towards the end of it, I had 
about £100,000 sponsorship deal set up. I had two factory Yamahas delivered to me. I had a mechanic. I had a van. I was going to go race Grand Prix. I was going to do all sorts. And it, it just, for want of a better word, the whole thing just went tits up. Right. Um, the, the sponsorship was withdrawn because the commercial rates in London on lots of properties was put up. So the company withdrew the sponsorship. Um, I didn't have the money to run the bikes properly. And mm -hmm. I, I was of the mindset that if I couldn't do it properly, I wasn't going to do it at all. Mm -hmm. So I walked away from it. And um, did, did, did a few random things. As I said, went on very long extended holidays, uh, did a bit of climbing, a bit of canoeing, went up the Amazon in a canoe, went across the Andes, did the Machu Picchu thing. Uh, right. Spent a while of summer working on a dive boat, helping people out, and then I thought oh, I needed to get a proper job, and ended up in London. I'd been in London a lot because I got fed up travelling up and down to the racing, mm -hmm. so ended up working for uh, Mercedes. Um, had again cut a very long story short, ended up as general manager of all things after sales on the Mercedes bus and coach side of the operation. Mm -hmm. uh, looked after all of the bendy buses that came into London. Uh, lots of people being, oh dear God, he didn't have anything to do with the bloody bendy buses. <laughs> uh, these... are, you, are you the man they can complain to? <laughs> That's right, yeah, yeah. So as I said, where Boris Johnson was involved and Ken Livingston, and then they were all fighting about the bendy buses. She'd never been in London, and they were spontaneously combusting and bursting into flames, and there was, there was all sorts of things. But what an experience in life! As I said, from a, from a, a mechanic that worked at Kings in Erlston to end up uh, in, in the mighty Daimler looking after one of their their key operations. Yeah, as I said, for somebody that struggled to read and write at 14 years old and all the things they'd gone through, I had thought, yeah, it's not too bad. And then you say you get married, you have kids. You, as I said, son got involved in go kart racing, and then then you get divorced and you move and things all change and then you get remarried again and as he said life just just takes over and I think I was kind of um I was I was doing lots of different things I was doing a bit of cross-country running and uh, starting to pick up different events and do different stuff and um, I was then diagnosed with um, throat cancer um and just just came out with the blue Mm -hmm. So, as I said, a bit, a bit of surgery, a bit of uh, radiotherapy, lost lost a bit of weight. And um, in the process of this, going back to very, very good friends. So Jimmy Shanks, my wife Susie, um, Robin Lamb, Leon Larego are all instrumental in putting me back on a bike. And I, I was, for want, in a want, want of a better word, I was in a shit state. I was struggling, struggling with life, struggling to eat, struggling to swallow. Uh, you would after after listening to this for the last hour and a bit, you hardly believe this, but I was struggling to talk. And it was going going to the toilet, my hands and knees. Uh, I, really, I really was. It, it was it was not a pleasant place to be. And people say cancer, it's a battle, it's a fight, it's a horrible disease. It is. It is all of these things. And I think we're uh, everybody's journey through it is different. Um, how people um, are affected by it, by the radiotherapy, is different. Um, I think where I had gone in for the radiotherapy treatment, and 
uh, my wife and I would, would, would go there and I had 35 fractions of radiotherapy. I would have five days of it, have the weekend off, go back in another five days for it. And uh, we started doing jigsaws and things when we were there. But the attrition rate when you were going in there, you think, oh, where's all Dave going today? Uh, so he, uh, he did, didn't make it sort of thing. And you were looking round about. And although it's a bit like the bike racing thing where people die. It, it, it's it's real. It happens. And it, it was happening round about me to people that I was seeing on a regular basis that was just disappearing. So the, the mindset and um, again, just the willpower. Um, yeah, you need quite a bit of it. For sure, for sure, as he said, uh, I think I've, I've got a great respect now for people that are anorexic because um, it's an illness, it's a disease. And what I went through was with all the treatment they were giving me, I, I was struggling to eat because of the mess my throat was in anyway. I was struggling to drink. So I didn't want to eat because I felt sick. I didn't want to eat because it was uncomfortable. And then if I did eat, I was then feeling sick again. So it was a vicious circle, but I was needing to put on weight and I, I was needing to get uh, protein, energy, all sorts of things in. And I was just struggling with it. So, But as I said, fortunately, as I said, with Susie looking after me and as I said, I don't get away with very much and um, force, force feeding me and all the rest of it. I, I was eventually I was admitted in a hospital where uh, I just couldn't get anything in. So uh, as I said, the last week of the radiotherapy it was wheeled from the ward down to have the radiotherapy then back onto the ward onto a drip and um i was hell bent on them not putting up a, a, a tube in the, the, to feed me right. and, and that was going back to i watched my brother be tube fed for two years and, mm. and to me that was just the beginning of the end and i had thought i'm not going to let that happen so, again, another bit of a, a very useful tool that I used was him and not wanting that to happen to me. So forced myself to eat and stuff and things. But um, I would I was very selfish in some ways because I was in hospital and I was it, it wasn't a nice environment that I was in. It wasn't good. And as you said, you had to have your wits about you. And um I, I, Susie would come in to see me and then because I, I, I then felt I could relax I, I would then go to sleep mm. so I would sleep while she was there and then when she was not there as I said I'm waiting on them to come and bring me my meds so I, I, I would be doped off my nut enough to be able to eat and swallow and get food down but if you didn't time it correctly you couldn't get your meds in at the right time to be able to get the desired effect for you then to be able to eat and I had a lot of people to look after. So, as I said, to try and orchestrate that so everything happened at the right time was really difficult. But man, it managed to get over it. As I said, got 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 over that, got home. And as I said, with a lot of TLC and patients and all the rest of it, she she managed to sort of get me up and about. So I was able to walk, and then from from walk go for long walks and get more food in and. Get, get a bit of energy and during that period of time this is where Jimmy, Robin and Leon had all colluded and Leon had sort of invited me up to come and look at his bikes and 
sort of reminisce over racing stuff and bits and pieces like that because he helped me out massively with some of the go-kart and stuff that I did although Leon has very much got a racing bike background so mm-hmm. we had a, 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 a common interest in it all and he says oh he says he says Roddy so I've got an old um, TZ350G he says I'll tell you what he says you sort yourself out and he says you can race my bike and I kind of screwed my face up at it and went, oh, no, you know, I've been there, done that, Leon. I said, I'm not that bothered about it. I'm not raced for God knows how long. Come on, you know you want to. He says, it's a niche that you can't scratch. He says, once once the needle's back in the arm, he says, there is no going back. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought about it. And as I said, I spoke to Robin Lamb and uh, as I said, between Susie and everybody else, I said, have a, have a go. And I said, well, you know what? I says. I'll have a go at it, but I'm not going to turn up half cocked. Yeah. So Mark Waldron, that runs a company called Small Boy Track Bikes, basically takes a bike to a track and hires it out for people to run around on. Mm-hmm. So um, Leon and I went hired a couple of bikes off him, went to Donington, run around for a day. And Mark, had, he, knew not, he knew nothing about my history or anything else. I was just another member of the public that turned up for a go on a track bike. And he said, but then the, he, says, he watched one lap and just wandered back into the garage. He says, no point in watching anymore. He says, he, says, he obviously knows what he's doing. <laughs> and, and just let me run around then for the rest of the, the, rest of the day. So I, I did, I think, half a dozen track days with 600cc modern bikes, which I found fantastic. I couldn't believe how forgiving and how easy they were to ride. And... Um, and in, in between all of this, Leon had been very busy putting together a 350 Yamaha for me. So I took the bike with Robin, Jimmy. Leon couldn't go. He wasn't well. But I took the bike up to Knock Hill and did a round of the CRMC, the Classic Racing Bike Championship at Knock Hill. Uh, time qualifying, stuck the bike on P2 and won the first race after 28 years. So so, 28 years. 28 years. 28 year gap. Uh, I had one good race in me that weekend because I was absolutely destroyed. I finished second in the other two. I did. But <laughs> it, it, it was an effort. I believe me, it was an effort. I had one good race in me that I tried. I thought, yeah, I'll oh, we'll give it a go, and I gave it a go. So as I said, that was that was after 28 years. So, which and as Leon had quite rightly said. Once the needle was back in the arm, there's no it. going back. So I don't know if that's a train spotting line or where that one came from, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's, it was. That, that is that is truly incredible. After 20, I know people that would could could race solidly every day for 28 years and never get a podium, never mind a win. So for you yeah. to do a handful of track days and just hop back on the bike as if you've never been away. I, I think again now, if I've had a bad day. And I saw somebody quite recently pulling a face because they had finished a third place and they got a third place trophy and they hadn't won. And and, and I had, did say to them, do you know, I said, there's another 60 odd people out there that's been trying all of their days to try and get that trophy and they've not even got one. I said, you're pulling a face at because you've not finished third. You just want to have a word with yourself and just kind of and enjoy it make the most of it. And they kind of looked at me and said, they, they got it. They understood it. Yeah. Wow. That is truly incredible. I, I can't get over that. This, this, the story you said, cause you, you effectively went and lived a whole other life for 20 plus years, 25 plus years. 
very very much so very so, much so so when you when you got back on that race for the first day and like you said when that visor clicked did the sudden 28 years just disappear and you were like i'm back exactly where i was when i left off yes really it did there's nothing much more to say to it than absolutely yes and now here's the question did you suddenly feel the calm automate go and did you just start to feel the smile just sort of come when you're just stood straddling about going i'm i'm ready for this yeah it was it was shut shut the visor and it, it, as you said it was a feeling that hadn't been there for a very very long time but it's wow. just that moment where as you said the visor clicks shut and mm-hmm. you're back in in your world in your own little world and it, it, it's a place where um i've not found anything to replicate that or replace it with. Wow. Um, um, is it, it might be weird for you to hear, considering the situation you go to, but I am weirdly envious of you getting to experience that feeling. I am weirdly envious. I've sat on the, the start line at the TT, and I've looked very closely at people like McGuinness, Guy Martin, uh, William and Robert Dunlop and as I said some of the front runners and when they're all sitting on the grid on Glenclatchery Road all ready to go and the number of them that you see all of the press the media everything all sort of drifts into the background of it and, and they're either sitting on their bike or they're sitting at the side of it just ready to roll and I, I can appreciate where they are and as I said where, where the adrenaline nerves and everything must be at but you can see it. It's almost a, a a sense of release that when they get to that point and they're away from everything else because nothing else matters. Nothing. And and this is when the racers world is a very selfish one. So some of these people, as he said, you've got commitments, you've got mortgages, you've got partners, you've got everything. As he said, kids and all sorts. But at that point, nothing else matters. Nothing. No, I can completely completely agree i got that buzz from racing go-karts you know um things like raceland and places like that yeah yeah i I get that i got that buzz from that when i was like 13 so i can only imagine how you felt yeah no no it's it's uh it's an experience definitely right roddy you've been very humble and you've spoken very highly of a lot of great motorbike riders and very talented racers but you're also still a pretty for want of a better word phenomenal racer in your own right to this very year and i want to talk about the nlr for those that don't it's the no limits racing championship you are yeah. the current 2021 super twins champion and as i told, as he said earlier quite rightly he came second in eight races this year what he's not told anybody yet is there's only 27 races in the season four of them haven't even been run yet and he's also got four wins and two thirds to his name for this year so, Roddy, you're pretty much on the podium for half the races or over half the races before the season's even finished. And then I, remind everybody of your age again, just for... <laughs> yeah, yeah, F- 58 years young. Apparently, I'm um, having my second midlife crisis. Um, my, 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 <laughs> I'm in my third childhood. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I, age is just a number. Um, Quite right. I think we're fitness... Um, I've worked hard on the fitness. There's all sorts of things that I do between running. Did you say you're not vegan? 
yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah. As I said, again, it's it's just helped. Mm-hmm. As I said, there's lots of more sort of veggie type of stuff that I can eat. I, st- I still don't produce a lot of saliva. Um, still very slow at eating. A uh, few after after effects of the cancer stuff, and need to be a bit choosier with what I eat. Reflux and various other things, and said meat taken to digest is not great and stuff. So uh, some of the things it, it it was the right thing to do, but mm-hmm. fitness um, do this British military fitness classes about three or four times a week. I'll go and run. Um, wife got me into, she had signed up to do a thing called the Fan Dance Race, which is across the top of the Brecon Beacons. I think it's 16 right. miles. It's, um, what do they do? Um, it's the f- same route as the SAS use for their final selection process. This is proper <laughs> hardcore. And as you said, there's some very hard men go and do this. Ex-Special Forces, ex-Army, ex-Paras, ex-all sorts. And they rock up and they like to go and do this because this is what they put the SAS through as the final selection. So there's a cut-off time for it for four hours. Now, mm-hmm. they, they've got to do it carrying a rifle and a backpack and bits and pieces. But as I said, I was just happy to do it under, under the four hours. So I managed to do it in three hours, 48 minutes. So at 50-odd wow. years old, I still got in under that time. So... This is where I'm going with this, the bike and the fitness stuff. I worked very, very hard on the fitness because I'm racing up against young kids. And as I said earlier on, it's an endurance event. I'm I'm traveling to the circuit on a Thursday, getting set up on a Thursday night, practicing on a Friday, um, time qualifying, heats and whatever on on a Saturday. And you've got to peak on a Sunday afternoon. And and it's 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 all peaks and troughs and adrenaline rushes and and as you said you you've got to produce results consistently over that period of time so the fitness side will work very hard on and that um, nah, Susie was very good and so it came and chased me along at all of these events and as I said we're I mean took part an awful lot of myself so it was it was good team effort it is very much a team effort and mm-hmm. to get to that this year. I think, um, again, very good people round about me. Uh, Nick Martin, that, that helps me out. There's a lot of engineering stuff for me. Um, his son's now racing in the CB500 class, so I, I help him. His name's Ricky Martin. Uh, I don't think he can sing. anyway. So, and, and he does take a lot of stick for actually um, every time. He's He's been up on the podium a few times in the CB500s. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're always playing shebangs or something like that to him. But as he said, he, he takes it in good part. But team effort, as I said, between uh, Rob, Rob Collard that I work for, fortunately, he understands the racing. And yes. there are lots of things that he supports me with. Um, sometimes it's a bit of good advice. Some, sometimes it's a bit of a good, lighthearted piss-taking just because he understands the racing world. And... I think there's there's a bit of um, when you were asking about films and things, TV series, films. There's a couple of films you've got to watch, whether it's Talladega Nights or whether mm-hmm. it's Days of Thunder. And there's a few one-liners in 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 that, mm-hmm. and where it, it's like um, Tom Cruise is off saying, "Yeah, I'm I'm going to drop the hammer," and that's it. He's just going to go. Or the other guy gets up in the morning, says, "Yeah, he says, I'm so good. He says, I'm just pissing excellence." Said <laughs> <laughs> so, but. There's there's so many diff, different bits and pieces in it all, as I said, and 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 Rob Collard gets it. He's been around the, the motor racing game all his life. 
His father was world hot rod champion, um, raced wow. up at Cowden Beath, and uh, but but Robert, as I said, multiple touring car winner. Um, won last year they made the move into the British GT scene and won uh, first time out won the British GT championship, and like um, he's now driving for uh, a Mercedes, but Lamborghinis, Ferraris, as I said, Robert's not short of a bob or two. No. Uh, he's been a very successful businessman, and the pair of him, him and I rocked up at Snetterton to go to do a test that he was doing at the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. And we looked around the paddock, and Robert had turned up with his very nice Range Rover, and we're looking around the, the paddock, and we both looked at one another and said, Dear God, you know what? This is just another league. And as I yeah. said, the people flying in in their helicopters, there's people turning up with, the, as you said, very latest Aston Martins and Ferraris and everything else are all parked up in the pits. And this, this is the, just the runabout cars. Yeah. So it, it, is, it is another world. But he, he gets the racing thing and, and he gets the, uh, the need for speed. That's another line from a film there. I meant it, uh, <laughs> top gun now. Top yeah. Gun. Uh, I just start rattling them off and see how many I can get references. It is, yeah, yeah. yeah. Rob's a bugger because if he getting interviewed, he will try and drop in random words and things, <laughs> just just out out of the blue, just that we, you don't expect. Completely and, uh, random tangent. We, we, used, yeah, to, we used to play that as wait, waiters. We used to do that. You had to get random words and you'd give yes. them. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I've not done that yet, but unwittingly. Um, this, this has gone back to the 1980s. I had gone out and um, there was me, Steve Hislop, um, the, the Dunlops, a few of us. We were all there and, and doing the, the um, Ulster Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. And I had been running top three on in the 350 race of that. And then the, the clutch had exploded. And that was the end of that. So I never, never got the finish. So I was back at the paddock looking fairly pissed off. And uh, local... Um, guy from um, Ulster Radio sticks a microphone under my nose and had gone, oh, you must be very disappointed with that. And I said, yes, I'm pretty pissed off. And, oh, and he, he's now, he said, we're live here on Ulster Radio. And he said, um, so what are you going to do when you go back home? And I had said, oh, just, just, just go back home. And this is my um, uh, help out in the local farm. And now, what kind of farm is it? And I still don't know what, what possessed me to this day. But I said, oh, I said, it's a penguin farm. <laughs> and he's open. Jesus says, I've never heard of one of them. I said, Yes, I said, I said the, the, the breed penguins. And they saw, I said, What kind of penguins are they? I said, They're racing penguins. I says, And there was a bit of hesitation. I said, oh, Before you said, I says, They sell them to the fishermen. I says, And they take them out on the boats. I says, Because the, the weather up in the north of Scotland, I said, It's like the Irish Sea. I says, They can't fly pigeons. I said, so there's no, no homing pigeons. I said, so they, they train the penguins to come back into the harbour. I said, they've got a little clip on their wing. They drop them off the fishing boats and they time them how how long it takes to come back. Oh, no, Jesus, I've never heard of that. Now, what kind of penguins are they? I said, well, I said, you've got rockhopper penguins. I said, and king penguins and emperor penguins. And I said, but I, I said, it's the emperor ones. I said, which is, I said, they're quite slick in the water. I said, they're quite fast. And it went on like this. But <laughs> that I didn't know at the time, it had gone out live on Ulster Radio. <laughs> and, and, and this guy, again, no pun intended, but he swallowed hook, line and sinker. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that was that oh. was a good one. 
Roddy, you're a mean man. You had some. No, no, no. I, w- I wouldn't do that to you, Sam. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I love, I love the thought of all of Ulster googling or whatever they were doing in the 1980s, just searching through papers, going, "Where's, yeah, this, where's this penguin farm in the heart of Ulster?" That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what you should do if you ever go back? You should open up a garage or something like that, and you have to name it the Penguin Farm or something That's like right, that. That's right, yes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Roddy, I can't believe it. Roddy, it's been two hours. I've taken up two hours of your time, and I feel really, really bad, and I feel like there's still so much more I could talk about. I've, I've still got some iron brew left here. I'm still still <laughs> okay. Let's keep going. Then keep going if you want. <laughs> so you're talking about – you were talking about – I want to talk about your future plans before you go. And yeah. Like, how, what does the future hold for you in terms of the world of motor racing still? Good question. Well put. Um, I've got a lot of time and effort into the, the super twins that I've got. Mm-hmm. It's an engineering class. You can't buy the bike off the shelf. Um, right. The rules are great. Suits me absolutely to T. You're, you're allowed to have either a 650 or 700cc bike. Um, other than that, you're not allowed to turbocharge it or supercharge it, and it's got to run on normal pump fuel. But other than that, it's game on. You can do whatever you want. So um, there, there's lots of people all trying to make them go fast, and, and I'm one of them. And if I can get my bike to go through the speed trap as fast as some of the established stars, it doesn't matter whether I win the race or not. I'm more than happy with that. So... <laughs> I will continue on the same path with the Super Twins for next year. Um, I love going to race at places like Scarborough because that, to me, is going back to the real grassroots of racing where we all turn up there, have a couple of beers and a bag of chips on a Friday night, and then we'll go and race and um, on on the, on on the Saturday and Sunday. But the people that turn up, they're, they're diehard fans, the ones that will go to the TT, the Ulster Grand Prix, the Northwest mm-hmm. 200, and they're a different bunch of people to the ones that are standing at the BSB rounds or the Grand Prix. Different, but completely different bunch. Much more, a lot of camaraderie. Um, I had problems with bikes at Scarborough, weren't running right, and the people that I was competing with are throwing parts at me to try and make sure that I get out on the grid. And I'm more than likely going to have a good go at beating them. But, but they are throwing parts at me to make sure that I make it to the grid. Now, that's more like the thing that used to go back in, in the late 70s and early 80s. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the kind of mindset of them all. So, as I said, people like uh, Guy Martin and the Dunlops and uh, I think uh, Lee, Lee Johnson and Peter Hickman, uh, they do some quite a bit of road racing. Um, but they're also two riders that's also doing very well on the short circuits. Not many do well on both. Where yes. um, Will Michael Dunlop, um, yeah, he's a roads man. He will do some of the short circuits and does reasonably well at it, but he doesn't excel on the roads. He absolutely excels. His name's Dunlop. What else is he going to do? No, no, a name like that, you're very good. Yes, that's right. At the very least, you need to be able to burn rubber. So in answer to your question, what am I going to do next year? I'm going to certainly do the Scarborough races. Um, I'm not going to go back and do a full-on championship year um, around either on Thunder Sport or No Limits or anything. And I'm going to pick and choose events that I want to go and do. Mm -hmm. 
So whether it's the, the support races to the TT in Isle of Man, whether it's um, some races in Belgium, uh, specific road races, or whether it's, as I said, Scarborough, I will just pick and choose what, what I want to do and just, just, just go and have a good day. Just go and have a good weekend. There's a lot of like-minded idiots that want to go and do the same thing. That sounds like you're racing for you, and that sounds like a perfect way to sum it up and end it. I think yeah. you've nailed that. For the listeners at home, you if you're on the audio, you won't have noticed what's happened. But for those of you that have come over to the YouTube channel, you'll have seen that Roddy's moved to a different location. And I've actually undressed my bed to make it for once. Because <laughs> what happened when we were talking previously, I forgot to ask Roddy the big main question that everybody loves, which is his three cheesy pop songs. So I called him back, told him I was dying to hear his voice once again after he'd had another long race weekend. And I thought, I'll just make him sit and talk to me for an hour. But Roddy's back. He's still good. He's still alive and kicking. <laughs> no matter how badly he throws himself into corners at 100 miles an hour. <laughs> you just got to hang on in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, I, I was at um, Cadwell Park at the weekend and um, followed, followed one of my competitors down the main straight. And the next thing I knew, my visor was getting plastered in oil. And I thought, shit. I've got to follow this guy. So I had, I had to make an instant decision. So I absolutely lunged him into the next corner, overtook him, almost run him off the circuit, whilst I was sort of frantically waving at him, gesticulating that there was something wrong. And fortunately, yeah. uh, Matt had his wits about him, and he, and he knew that I wouldn't have done that without good reason, because mm -hmm. the back of his bike was just pouring out oil. And the last thing I wanted to do was to be following him into the next 100-mile-an-hour corner where he's dripping oil all over the place. So... <laughs> Uh, he thought that I did it for his own well-being. I didn't want to disappoint him. It was for my own <laughs> preservation. It was nothing to do with him. So I thought, no. But these 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 things happen anyway. So mm -hmm. no, but at least at least at least he was sensible. I know. At least he was sensible enough to go. Raleigh knows a thing or two. So if he's telling me something wrong, there's probably something wrong. It was yeah, without a doubt. I think he was about eighteen or nineteen. He was quite a young kid, and as he said, but fast, very fast, and. Mm -hmm. uh, as I said, I, I just decided I was going to follow him for a couple of laps to see what he was going to do. And as we <laughs> spoke about earlier, we were saying about um, sometimes you've you just got to, to finish first. First, you must finish. And yeah, I thought, exactly. it, it, was, it was a bit keen, I thought. And I thought, oh, well, let's just follow him for a little while and see what he's going to do. But uh, no, unfortunately, the mechanical gremlins got the better of him and started to throw bits at me out the back of his bike. So... <laughs> So yeah, 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 the chimp crazy. running, yeah, yeah, the chimp running around his head, and yeah, the gremlins running around his bike. <laughs> he did, yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely, yeah. You don't want the the, the chimp out your head. You need to keep that under control. <laughs> exactly, right, Roddy. Well, I'm not going to waste too much of your evening, not on record anyway. I enjoy the conversations we have off off camera when we can say say a few more juicier stories. But Roddy, the main question and the question everybody loves to hear. You've got three. You have to pick three cheesy pop songs, or just three any all-time favourite songs of yours to get a party started. What three songs are you picking? I, I I think when we spoke earlier, you were saying about what would I do if I was going out on a Friday night or something. Going out on a Friday night is a bit tricky nowadays, but often, yeah, getting in the right frame of mind to go somewhere. Um, if if Susie and I is going to go out somewhere, as he said, either on the drive there or we getting ready or whatever. I think there, there, there's a bit of scar will go on with a bit of bad manners, special brew, something like that, where it's you think, yeah, it's a bit uplifting and whatever, <laughs> as I said. I think, I suppose, uh, not being cheesy, it's a bit of our, our song to us, where we, we are both our own special brew to one another. So, as I said, we, we have a bit of a laugh and a chuckle about it and uh, don't 
don't take things too seriously. So that that kind of sums up, get gets you going a bit. So it's it's, it's a good catchy little number, as they say. That's lovely. That's made my heart go wee bit. That's lovely. There you go. Like, I'm, Chris, you'll think there's something wrong with me. I'm getting a bit sentimental here or something. You, you complimented her writing a book and now you said you yeah. actually like so, listening to the you music. Know, the, truth, the truth of the matter is she'll probably think I've bought another motorbike or something. <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah. You've not told her that you've just spent the savings that you had for the holiday that COVID cancelled. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what savings? They've already gone in engine parts. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be having a, an eBay embargo again to stop me buying motorcycle parts until Christmas or something. Oh no, you suddenly find the joint account only works on her car. <laughs> that's right, yes, yeah, 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 that's the one. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's not a rev limit or on it, it works differently. That's what she said, the credit limit on there, she says, it's not a, it's not a target. Yeah, oh, I, I struggle with that. I completely sympathise with you. As soon as there's money there, that's, that's potential toys in my mind. No, it's motorcycle parts. That's what I mean. Toys. I assume motorcycle parts to you are toys. Yeah, yeah. They don't don't work without it. So exactly. that's tomorrow's problem. If I need spare parts, I worry about what I do with that. So, which lend leads me on another song, which which was Bob Marley's Three Little Birds. And, oh yeah. What's that all about? How comes that a bit uplifting? But it's just don't don't worry. As I said, be happy. Everything's going to be all right. And it is. And if you just listen to it, 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 it'll just lift your spirits a little bit. And you think, yeah, everything will be all right. So it doesn't matter how much you think or how high the pile of shit is. It's not that bad. Life really isn't that bad. There are people out there in worse situations than what you're in and um, make the best of it. So, yeah, Bob Marley. He always, like he always sounds like he's bashing the bottom of a saucepan every time he starts one of his, his hits. Or maybe that's just what's on the list of greatest hits to do with Bob Marley. But uh, yeah, a bit of Reggie music never goes wrong either. No, um, exactly. That's two out of three very successful songs so far. It is, yeah. Um, third one. I pondered over this for quite some time and I just thought, back to basics, pick the phone up looked at the playlist for the most recent plays on stuff mm -hmm. and I had thought it's it is a going out on a Friday night kind of tune. I, I like I, I can't be doing with clubs and rammed in with people spilling beer over the top of one another and all the rest of it. Love a bit of live music and mm -hmm. I think getting in the mood for that, go see I've seen quite a few tribute bands but I've I've, I've seen this lot live as well. So ACDCs shook me all night long. Oh, said, brilliant that, song. That, that will get you going. Mm -hmm. uh, saw them many moons ago in um, Edinburgh, Edinburgh Playhouse that they played, <clears throat> as well as well as at Wembley. Wow! And, Did you, uh, were you in, in the seats and everything? Didn't you get to stand? Well, I suppose you could stand up if you wanted, but in the in the typical theatre setup, they didn't take the chairs out for everybody. They no? Didn't. No, no. It was <clears throat> you were falling over the top of the chairs and bouncing <laughs> over the top of one another. It, it was it, it was wild, <clears throat> and. Um, Edinburgh Playhouse uh, at Rock that night, ACDC. Can't remember. I think it was a Hell's Bells tour or something like this. But oh, yeah, wow. no, but very, very good. And as I said, shook me all night long, and my ears reverberated for about the next two days, like I had been riding a screaming two-stroke for a couple of hours. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, when you come out of a nightclub at so early hours in the morning, and your ears are ringing. Yes, it was I know exactly. Very that. much like that. So. 
Yeah, I'm probably a bit deaf because of that. So, but yeah, just to get you going for a, for a good Friday night out, but ACDC, that rocks. Well, sir, those three songs, just like your whole episode, that's put you right at the top of my mind. Brilliant. I can't wait to add them to the playlist as well. I'm working on I'm working on making a little playlist for the Spotify so the listeners can get a good indication of what all our guests are like. But Yeah. Wow. Roddy, I must say this has been a proper, proper pleasure. This is not going to be the last time me and you chat. It's going to be, I'm definitely going to be keeping in touch. I've never been to Scarborough, Scarborough Racetrack, so I'm going to see you there for sure. That's going to be on the list. You need to get it on the bucket list, Sam. You need to come on down. Well, I'll, I'll, the next one, I'll be there. How about that for the deal? I'll go. Absolutely. I'll bring, I'll bring my old man. He's a massive petrol head. I'll bring yeah, no, no, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Another set of hands in the pits never goes wrong. <laughs> I'm clueless when it comes to mechanics, but I'm very monkey see, monkey do. So if you tell me, I'll be able to do it. <laughs> You're and, if worse comes, and, if worse, and if worse comes to worse, I can chat shit in the corner to keep everybody entertained. Ah, so well, that's that. it. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's half the game. Right, Roddy, where can people keep up with you on social media? Um, I'm, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, and occasionally when I can kind of get my head around it, I might remember to do something on Twitter, but probably mostly on, on, on Facebook, I think, is... Um, Susie's very good. She 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 does the updates and bits and pieces for me. I'll if if you get a very uh, badly spelt and terrible grammar one out there with a, a few real random off the cuff ones on it, yeah, that'll be me. I'll have dropped that one in there. Mm-hmm. But race reports on what I've been doing or whatever, yeah, no, Susie keeps me right on that. As I said, team effort and uh, yeah, takes care of all of the entries and all of the organisation and all the things that you just need to do to make it happen. <laughs> so she, she, she all, the, all the important stuff, you just throw it around the corners. That's it, yeah. Yeah, I just, 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 turn, I just turn up and have a good time. It's just it's a professional racer. <laughs> Amazing. Well, all those links are going to be in the description, in the bottom. Everybody will be able to find it. Like I said, I'm going to be keeping up to date, Roddy. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so, so much. For all the listeners at home, make sure you like if you subscribe if you're watching on YouTube, leave a rating, five-star ratings help more than anything on earth you can ever imagine. As always, any constructive criticism, I always want to hear it. I want to know how we can get better, how we can improve. I don't want some engineer in my head telling me to break 100 yards later, but anything that will do. Roddy, thank you so much for your time, good sir. I'll let you get on with your evening. As everybody who's watched the podcast will notice, it's gone dark in both our rooms. We've been chatting for so long. It has. All the best, Sam. Great to speak to you. Roddy, always a pleasure. I'll be keeping in touch and we'll probably chat once I finish this anyway. So everybody else, thank you for listening and we'll see you next week with another episode. Cheerio. Bye.